Hi again, everybody, and welcome once again to Louisville Bats Baseball. It is episode four of the Bat Chat podcast brought to you by Norton Healthcare. Thanks so much for being with us. I'm Nick Curran, and uh, what a special edition of the podcast we have this week, a special watch-along edition of the podcast. Jim Kelch is our guest, the longtime voice of the Redbirds, River Bats and Bats. Of course, uh, he first became the voice of the then Redbirds back in 1989, Served as the voice of the Louisville professional baseball team all the way through 2009 before joining the Reds broadcast team on a full-time basis to start the 2010 season. Of course, included in Jim's tenure was the move from Cardinal Stadium to Louisville Slugger Field, the jewel of a ballpark that the Bats still call home today, celebrating the 20th anniversary of Louisville Slugger Field this season in 2020. Jim was behind the TV microphone, the first ever game at Louisville Slugger Field. It was back on April 12, 2000, as the Bats took on the Norfolk Tides. Wave 3 TV had the TV broadcast, and Jim was uh, joined by Scott Reynolds and Bob Dominey on that broadcast. So we invite you to watch the game along with us today on the podcast. It'll be a little bit of a longer episode. Fire up YouTube and uh, go to the... Well, type in 2000 Louisville Slugger Field home opener will tell you when to hit play, and you can uh, have that along with us. You can also listen even if you don't happen to watch the game, but uh, it'll be fun to take a trip down memory lane with Jim. All that coming up here in just a second. Before we get into that, a reminder, the podcast is brought to you by Norton Healthcare with Norton eCare. We're here to help you while you stay in the comfort and safety of your home anytime, day or night. A Norton Healthcare provider is available to discuss non-urgent health concerns for patients two and older, whether it's for a fever, a cough, respiratory symptoms, or a minor illness. Schedule a video visit or submit an e-visit questionnaire from your laptop, tablet, or mobile device. Schedule online at nortonhealthcare.com slash eCare. Such an important thing right now with all of us continue to stay in our homes and uh, social distance. Hope everybody is staying very safe as we continue along in this time and uh, hoping to get back to baseball sooner rather than later. But trying to help you pass the time while you are, uh, well, kind of stuck at home. And this will be a little bit of a longer podcast to help you do that. Reminder, go to BatsBaseball.com to keep up on all the latest with the Bats. Some exciting things happening there you can uh, check out the team store if you want to do that. You can also check out Buddy's Curbside Pickup, the details on that, partnering with some of the great restaurants that support the Bats, and uh, a lot of other stuff. You can get into BatsBaseball.com, some great activities for the kids to help pass the time, and uh, even educational as well. Plenty of great things in the works, too. and Also, uh, you should be seeing this either as this podcast drops or shortly after uh, a special t-shirt that the Bats are partnering with the other two minor league baseball teams in the state on, the Bowling Green Hot Rods and the Lexington Legends, uh, a special Team Kentucky t-shirt. Uh, proceeds from that, you can pre-order it, again, through the Bats team store, batsbaseball.com. Uh, that'll be up and running, and uh, you'll be able to pre-order that shirt. It'll be a, a very inexpensive shirt, just $15 with part of the proceeds going to one Louisville in the uh, COVID-19 response there. So uh, going to a good cause, and uh, all three teams will be uh, selling those. You can pick them up, our portion of the proceeds, the bats, 
going to one Louisville again, batsbaseball.com and the team store very shortly, if not up already, will be shortly after this podcast drops. We welcome in our guest this week on the Bat Chat Podcast, the one and only Jim Kelch. Jim, how are you? I'm doing well, Nick. You know, c- considering everything that we're going through, yeah, hanging right in there. Yeah, it's uh, definitely different times, but we're making do. Uh, this should be a fun podcast. Looking back at the first ever game at Louisville Slugger Field, we're doing this from uh, from two separate places. Jim is at home up in the, the northern Kentucky area. I'm here at home in Louisville. I'm in my dining room. Jim, you are in your... I'm in my den slash office slash man cave. Wonderful. That's how we're doing it. Uh, so you might hear throughout this uh, my, my, uh, my air kick on and off. So uh, we'll apologize for that in advance. You never know who's going to walk through sitting in the middle of the dining room. So Yeah, and if you uh, happen to hear a meow from this end, you'll know it's our cat <laughs> who's coming in wanting attention, whether he wants to go outside or get fed or wants a drink. You never know. It's all going to be great. Looking forward to it all. The sights and sounds of looking back at this thing. Uh, if you want to watch along with us, as we mentioned earlier, go to YouTube, type in 2000 home opener at Louisville Slugger Field. It will pull up the video that you may have watched on Facebook Live uh, last week. And uh, now this week, you'll be able to watch it along with us. So pull that up, YouTube, 2000 home opener at Louisville Slugger Field. It's from April 12th, 2000, the first ever game, the ballpark opening uh, as the Bats took on the Norfolk Tides. The man on the call and the the voice of uh, the, the Redbirds and then River Bats and then Bats, Jim Kelch, with us to take us uh, down memory lane. So hope you have it pulled up. And if you can't watch along with us, this will, this will stand alone pretty well also. So you can just uh, listen as you're maybe driving around, taking a walk, whatever, whatever the case may be. Uh, we're looking forward to doing this and um, should be a lot of fun. Jim, if you want to go ahead give the folks a countdown and we'll hit play at the same time, you can hit play at home and, and we'll watch it together. Okay, here we go. Countdown in three, two, one. And you should be into the video of uh, the opening game ever at Louisville Slugger Field back in April 12th, 2000. Something that was highly, highly anticipated and something, Nick, that uh, I've not really talked about a lot, but something that I was not originally really in favor of. Well... I want to get into that. I've been doing a lot of reading as you see this great open. This was aired, of course, on Wave 3 TV back then. Um, They have this uh, pretty good-looking advanced CG model, especially for local news back in the year 2000 of this ballpark. That's pretty cool stuff. Uh, But there was, and we'll get into this, uh, a lot being made about whether to uh, whether to move downtown or to or to stay at a, a renovated Cardinal Stadium after U of L football moved out of there, and uh, there was a lot written about that. So I, we'll talk about that as we move along throughout the course. I've come into some some old articles that uh, that are kind of chronicling that whole journey that I want to talk to you about and see what you remember from that time because I know all that's really really interesting. Uh, look at that packed house. Yeah, it's really great. The weather, as I recall, was was not fantastic, but was really pretty good for that night. You can see jackets on for the fans there. And when you go upstairs to us here, we just have sport coats on. There's Scott Reynolds, the longtime news guy in, in the Louisville area, who kind of hosted this thing. And Bob Dominey, who is a, is a sports icon 
in the Louisville area, was part of the broadcast as well. And uh, uh, he kind of headed it up at the beginning. You kind of missed the memo. Those guys kind of go with the jacket with kind of the turtleneck look. Um, and then, you know, as they'll pan over to you, you went shirt and tie. So you, you yeah, kind of missed you missed the TV guy uh, turtleneck jacket look there. Well, first of all, I didn't like that look. Second, secondly, <laughs> I was not really a TV guy. I was a radio guy, but uh, the only one of the crew really who could do a baseball game. Bob knows a lot about sports, obviously, and so does Scott, but he's a newscaster. Bob is a sportscaster, not a play-by-play guy, so I was brought in to uh, to do the play-by-play, and it was uh, an honor, really. I mean, uh, we did this, as I recall, down in what was then the old media room. It was, uh, what is it now? What is that uh, room used for now, Nick? Is this? Yeah, I was going to ask you, is this the very last booth there, or is it the second-to-last one with a little perch in it? I believe it's this, it was then the second to the last booth uh, that has the second level in it. Yeah, that one is kind of where oh, look at uh, great stuff there, looking good. Um, the it's the it's used for mostly like writers and folks that come in to cover it, and and the uh, the media relations staff will sit in there a lot too. And and there he is, Deion Sanders hitting leadoff for the River Bats in this game. Yeah, you know, we had uh, we had talked about here on this open. Uh, Scott's asking me now about when would Sanders be ready to go to the big leagues, and uh, he had had a shoulder, I think, and an ankle injury at the time, and was hoping to be down here a week or two. This is uh, almost in the middle of April, and then go back to the big leagues. Was it turned out he never made it back to the big leagues in that season, two thousand? He did get back to the big leagues later on in his career. He played some for Toronto. He played some for the Reds the following year, but in two thousand. The injuries kind of did him in. Yeah, and uh, we'll, we'll get into that too as as we move along with the game, getting ready to start. Um, how much – we'll, we're going to go into a little bit of broadcast nerdum during this. It's unavoidable. How much TV had you done at this point? You know, we had had a TV package out at uh, – we always call it now Old Cardinal Stadium. We'd had a TV package out there with uh, – I think it was – uh, sports channel that turned into Fox where we did, um, I don't know, maybe uh, 10 to 12 games a year on sports channel. All the games were recorded and then run back later on. Uh, I did the games usually and there for a long while, uh, Tab Brockman, who was the uh, media relations director for the team. He was the color commentator and he had kind of uh, set it up the late Dale Owens was really the impetus behind getting the games on TV. And then he handed it off to Tab, and Tab organized it. And then kind of, uh, and he did a nice job, and don't get me wrong. And he kind of inserted himself into that color position. So I did the play-by-play, and uh, Tab did the uh, the color. And there was a, a time, Nick, and, and I think you'll appreciate this. This is real broadcast nerddom. That, uh, and they used to do this in the big leagues too. The radio guy... And the TV guy would kind of swap in the middle innings. Sure. You know, like I, I was doing TV. Dave Wilson at the time is now up in the Cleveland area broadcasting. Uh, he was doing radio. And in the middle three innings of the game, he would come over and do TV. And I would go over and do radio. That's how a lot of big league teams did it. Because remember back in the day, back in the 80s still, and certainly in the 90s, uh, radio was still the star of the broadcast uh, grouping of TV and radio TV games were maybe at that time, I think maybe teams were doing 70 or 80 games or about half the games, but the radio guy 
Marty Brenneman uh, with the Reds, Jack Buck with the Cardinals, was still the star. So they had the games on TV, but they really wanted that star broadcaster to get some time on television. So they'd have them come over and do some. And in a lot of instances, the radio guy just came over and did the first three and the last three, and somebody else did it on the radio because they deemed that they wanted legitimacy with this television broadcast. So who more to legitimize it than their main broadcaster? So we tried that a little bit too. And then we had a television package out here at Cardinal Stadium, rather at uh, Louisville Slugger Field, where we used uh, a former uh, UofL baseball coach, Lelo Prado, did color mm-hmm. with me, and current Bellarmine Athletic Director, Scott Wiegand, who many folks know now as the longtime AD at Bellarmine. But years ago, back in the 90s, he was a pitcher uh, of some note in the minor leagues. He never made it to the big leagues, although he should have with Philadelphia, later signed with the Cardinals and pitched in Louisville for a few years and became the baseball coach at Bellarmine and then the AD at Bellarmine, where he's been now transitioning them into Division I athletics. But at the time, he was uh, in his early stages of non-playing. And so he and Lalo would kind of swap doing the color with me on games. And again, they were recorded and then run back later. They were never really aired live. Just saw... uh... Jerry Abramson, who I guess at this time was the former mayor of, of Louisville, would be mayor again, was a big impetus in getting this uh, this stadium built. Dave Armstrong, who I think was the current mayor at the time, and Paul Patton, who was the governor of Kentucky at the time, throwing out first pitches there, and they get ready for the national anthem. Do, do you remember who was doing radio here while you were on the TV side? That would have been 2000. I was working yeah. the games that year actually by myself. Oh, okay. you know, it could it could have been it could have been uh, Sean Moth from University of Louisville, the uh-huh. PA man and the baseball broadcaster for U of L. He may have done that. You can probably check with him and, yeah. and find out. I bet he, certainly he remember he did a handful of games. And he may have been the guy. It's also possible that we brought Dave Wilson in. There was a time when we brought him in for a uh, for for radio when we were we had this television package uh, set up. It could have been him, but my memory tells me that it was Sean who came in and did the game that night. That's a that would be a very interesting interesting footnote. I was kind of wondering with you over on TV who would have been. Uh in that booth and and uh the anthem a lot of great shots here it was a a great crowd that night uh i have your actual old scorebook from this from this night you have pictures of it because we couldn't get yeah. together but um 13 is the the listed attendance and this was a wednesday night obviously a uh, a lot was leading up to this with the stadium opening but uh the home opener on a wednesday and uh, a bit of a chilly night, and and goodness, over thirteen thousand there—a sellout crowd, and uh, it looks great there on on TV. Yeah, that was a sellout plus a standing room only night. And as you can see, it's kind of overcast, but they had all the pomp and circumstance with the flyovers and and everything going on. You mentioned uh, uh, Jerry Abramson, who really was a big time proponent of getting this stadium built. And as you mentioned, Nick, even though he was no longer mayor at the time, would be mayor later on, he his was a major push to get this built on the east end of Main Street to kind of start that strip between what was then the ballpark and before that the old rundown uh, train station with everything around it kind of uh, dilapidated all the way to 2nd Street where now uh, the Yum Center sits. That whole stretch in there, uh, was really run down and beat up. 
And now, you know, it's a, it's a, a jewel of downtown, part of a, of a great downtown area in Louisville. And I remember them always talking about wanting to copy what Indianapolis had done in their downtown. It was such a pleasure to go to downtown Indianapolis. And, you know, people in Louisville thought, we need that kind of same thing here in the Derby City. And that was the start of it, really, Louisville Slugger Field. Yeah, Indy's Victory Field opened downtown in July of 96. Kind of weird timing. They did it right in the middle of the season. But um, in in reading about uh, Louisville Slugger Field and, and you know, kind of uh, developing it and, and figuring out the plans for it, um, there was a lot of mention of Victory Field up at Indy. There was a lot of mention of the stadium in, in Salt Lake. I guess they moved one downtown. And, and also some mention of, uh, of Coors Field there in, in Denver uh, with the Rockies having, um, you know, come to be a major league team and having that ballpark in, in the downtown area. I saw those three mentioned a lot uh, as, you know, folks were trying to figure out how they wanted to handle this ballpark down on the riverfront. You know, I can't remember the name of the street in Denver, but you're exactly right. It kind of is the end of that stretch in, in downtown Denver that turned into just a, a party haven with restaurants and bars and clubs and things to do. And right at the end of that then is Coors Field and, and it leads into the downtown area where people really walk to the ballpark. All the hotels and things are less than uh, a mile away and some of them even like a half mile away. And you can walk to the ballpark in Denver and that uh, it really is if you want to copy something and say, this is what it kind of looks like, I would say it's more like Denver than anything else, including Indianapolis, because up in, up in Indianapolis, Victory Field is not really the cornerstone of it. It's kind of offset uh, from the downtown area. And it was moved from the outskirts of town also to be in downtown. But really, the RCA Dome at the time was the, was the, the big uh, facility in downtown Indy. And then on the other end of downtown was the Pacers Arena. It used to be Market Square Arena. They tore that down and built the new one. So kind of in between our, the RCA Dome and the uh, the Pacers Arena is the big area that was developed in, in Indianapolis. The baseball stadium was an addition. Here in Louisville, this was the core of, the, of, of it right now. Uh, Louisville Slugger Field. There you see Dave Miley, the longtime yes. Reds AAA manager. Those, got, those colors, by the way, I wasn't a real fan of either. You didn't like the kind of green and gold and purple, huh? No, it didn't last very long, actually. I loved it when they ultimately switched to bats because everybody called them the bats. They were the river bats for, what, three years, two years, whatever it might have been. And then they switched to just bats because people called them the bats anyway. But it's funny because even now, to this day, 2020, you can talk to people and they'll say, oh, I love going to the river bats. Yes. It's like, well, it wasn't really, you know, it's not river bats anymore. It's bats. And I love the the logo that the team uses now. And I love the color combination that the team uses now. And the kind of a th the old look uniforms. Uh, these these uniforms that the, the river bats wore in that little stretch uh, were not great, in my estimation. I've always been kind of partial to the to the vest uniform look, which they which they did have kind of the vest with sleeves. But um I think you're right about the colors. Uh, Riverbat starting lineup. You got some good names in there. Dion, of course, leading it off. Chris Sexton, Brooks Kieschnick, Mike Bell. Um, 
there are Jason LaRue, of course, was in the lineup here. Um, there, Brady Clark, there, there's, there's some good names. Uh, we'll get into a lot of them as we move along throughout it, but um, a pretty stout uh, Riverbats club. And, and uh, you know, not only the stadium opening, but this was also, you know, it kind of gets a little bit downplayed because the stadium was opening, but also the first first year of Reds affiliation. So you were a, a few games in about six, this game seven of the season into Reds affiliation and trying to learn all that. Yeah, you know, you saw that look of the uniform there. That was Osvaldo Fernandez, a Cuban pitcher that the Reds had signed who was starting on opening day. You saw that look, and I agree with you, Nick, 100%. I love the vest look, but you saw there, they, I think he had purple sleeves, a green-bodied hat. It's just a, a, a combination, a bad combination of all sorts of different colors that it almost was like somebody said, well, I love purple, and someone else said, well, I love green, and someone else said, well, I love gold. Like, okay, we're going to make everybody happy. We're going to throw them all in there and uh, make it the uniform. Let's see, there's Buddy Bat wearing a, a yellowish. What, what is that? That's a Look at that combination. That's not a good uh, look. Buddy was great, a, but that's not a good look. That's a rough combo. That's a rough combo. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Buddy's come a long way since then in a lot of ways. Uh, El, I, is, that our, is that our good Buddy still back then? Do you remember? Yeah, but well, you know what? I don't know that. I shouldn't say I, I, that was. There, I don't think it was. Okay, there, Jeremy, there was. I, don't there, think it was. I could. I don't know if it was Jeremy or not. There, there's um, there's some video of him dancing later, which looked like some very Jeremy esque moves. So I thought maybe so, but but uh, I wasn't. I wasn't sure. Uh, before the game gets going, I think there's one more commercial break here, and then they jump into the game. Um. This was, you know, an interesting time. So long, the affiliate of the St. Louis Cardinals going back to win baseball came back to Louisville back in 1982, uh, a couple of years under Brewers affiliation. And then this was the first year uh, locked in with the Reds. And that's obviously lasted for 20 years since. Still a, a Reds affiliate to this day is this Louisville team. Uh, but what do you remember about that and, and going into year one of, of being a Reds affiliate? I actually remember back, Nick, back to the 1999 season when uh, uh, the the Redbirds and the Cardinals were the, or actually to 1997 when the sure. Redbirds and the Cardinals were the affiliate, and there was some bad blood between the Cardinals and the Redbirds for whatever reason. Uh, something was not uh, right between the two after what 16, 17 years of affiliation. And so they decided to go their separate ways, and the Cardinals took their Redbirds team and their name uh, to Memphis. They, the Memphis team had been the double-A club of the uh, – uh, I'm trying to think who they were uh, – Kansas City, I think. And okay. so they, they became they became the Cardinals' triple-A club with the idea they were going to build a brand-new ballpark, and they did a luxurious triple-A ballpark in downtown Memphis. And Louisville was kind of hung out to dry – as to what they were going to get. And they ended up getting Milwaukee. And I, I don't even remember where Milwaukee had been prior to that. They may have been down in New Orleans. Uh, it's possible they were in New Orleans in 1997. But uh, they ended up coming to uh, Louisville for a two-year stint. We weren't sure how long that stint was going to be. It ended up being two years because of the affiliation with Cincinnati. But they came in, and I remember it was, it was like a divorce. It really was because of uh, 
of the long ties between Louisville and St. Louis and all the people. I mean, you knew everybody with the Cardinal organization, and they knew you. And so when instructors came to town, uh, rovers came to town, uh, executives from the uh, ball club came to town, you knew them and they knew you. And all of a sudden, after the 97 season, it was like, hey, they're gone. You're no longer going to be uh, with them. And this Milwaukee group came in and were like, who are they? Who, who is this group? And, uh, you know, we, we had a good season under Gary Allenson in 1998, won the division, made the playoffs. And then uh, after the 99 season, when uh, the Reds had their issues with Indianapolis, they decided to part ways with them. And there were rumors the whole second half of the season as the game has gotten underway here. Curtis Pride was the first batter ever at Louisville Slugger Field, and he grounded out. Here's Joe McEwing now, just as, as an aside. McEwing is a coach in the big leagues with the uh, with the White Sox. Yeah, how about that? And this guy was coming off a year in St. Louis with the Cardinals where they referred to him as Little Mac. They loved him. You know, Big Mac being Mark McGuire, they called him Little Mac. Uh, they they uh, he, he had gotten quite the following there in St. Louis having a, a nice year in 1999. Yeah, he really, he really did. It turned out to be his only, uh, his last year with the Cardinals. He played almost every game that year for them and then had a decent career with the Mets, ended up in, with Houston later on. But uh, yeah, he, he, Joe McEwing is one of those, uh, one of those hard, hard scrabble, play it, play it, uh, you know, all out every, every at bat, every ball hit. And that's what people loved, you know? And, uh, uh, so he was the second, but look at those, look at that tie. They're a little bit large on that. Isn't it out in front there? Yeah. At least they've got the number on the front though. That's a key. We've got the number. I, I do on. like that too. Well, anyway, Nick, so to complete the story about the transition from St. Louis to Milwaukee, two years made the playoffs under Gary Allenson, who was a great guy and had the driest sense of humor. He was really a funny guy. I enjoyed Gary being there for two years. And then uh, about the middle of the 99 season, you start hearing rumbles, uh, rumblings about a new ballpark being built and who was going to be the affiliate. And uh, the Reds were having trouble, supposedly, with, with Indianapolis. And uh, there was going to be a window of opportunity at the end of the season if teams wanted to change. And the day after the season ended in 1999, I mean, the, the next day, the season ended on a Monday and on a Tuesday, there was an announcement made that uh, Louisville and the Reds were going to uh, become affiliates and uh, open up the new stadium in downtown Louisville. And boy, the people in Indianapolis lost their minds. You know, they, I think they even filed tampering charges with minor league baseball because how in the world, when nobody should be able to negotiate before Tuesday morning, how in the world did the Reds and the Louisville franchise come to an agreement and make an announcement, you know, less than 24 hours later? I don't think anything came of the lawsuit, but uh, that's how it all came to be. And all of a sudden, we were a Reds affiliate. And really, the people then of Louisville had their cake and could eat it too. They were getting a new ballpark. And so really, those early years of the ballpark, it wouldn't have mattered who the affiliate was because you had this brand new stadium, this new toy to go to and enjoy baseball. It had all the amenities. It was as modern as modern could be 20 years ago. So it really wouldn't have mattered who the affiliate was, but you then had the Reds as the affiliate, which I think they did a survey that winter between 99 and 2000, and something like an ungodly amount, like 75% of baseball fans in the Louisville area 
were Reds fans. So how could it get any better than that? Oh, just an exciting time for baseball fans in this area. All of it coming together at once. And you saw the error from Brooks Kieschnick there, who was playing first base. Um, you know, and you look at the stadium, it's just uh, so interesting, you know, how similar it still is, but how much has changed the, the padding there kind of gray. Uh, you'll see throughout this uh, telecast, a, a lot of elements of it weren't quite all the way finished as they were kind of rushing to get everything ready for opening, the, you know, the home opener there in 2000. And, uh, you know, Nick, you mentioned that uh, the, you said gray padding right there. I don't think that's padding. I think that's oh, uh, cement. It might be. I don't think they had the padding up yet. You mentioned everything wasn't quite finished at the time when the ballpark opened. For instance, the offices weren't open. Our offices were still out at Old Cardinal Stadium. I believe that padding, I think that's cement back there. It might very well be. Certainly I on the sidewalls. This may be gray padding that hadn't been painted yet, but on the side walls, as I recall, it was cement. They hadn't had the padding put up yet. It was one of the things that was still to be accomplished. How about that? Uh, Ryan McGuire there with a the base hit. And um, it's it's just so interesting to look at it. And I, I thought it was a lot of fun to listen to you three kind of banter, you and Scott and Bob banter about uh, the ballpark at the very beginning, you know, there was talk about what kind of ballpark would it be? Would it be a hitter's park? Would it be a pitcher's park? You guys talked about that a little bit over the course of it. And, and uh, you kind of said, well, you, you got to wait and see, you know, there, there hasn't been a game played. So you kind of have to see how things play out. And, and uh, we know now that this has become Louisville Slugger Field, one of the most notorious pitcher's parks in the international league, but you didn't know back then because no one knew how it was going to play. No, and remember, one of the big things that people had uh, a question about was that because of where the team and franchise had come from. Remember, Cardinal Stadium was built as a football field and a football stadium, and then a baseball team was kind of shoehorned in there. So remember, out the left field, it was like 360 or 370. It was a huge blast out to that bullpen underneath the scoreboard out at Old Cardinal Stadium, and it was big in center field as well. And then where those foot, what they used to call the football bleachers out in right and right center at old Cardinal stadium, is it cut in? It was something like three Oh two down the right field line. And remember in those early years, back in the early eighties, they put a big fencing, just a net, a kind of a netting up there in right field, going from the right field line out into right center and ultimately built a blue wall that they called the ski slope. And you remember that, Nick, where it would yeah, go, I do. it went yeah. back about, I don't know, 10 feet or so, and then went up again and went out into right center field. They called that the ski slope, and it helped a little bit, but uh, truth be told, not a whole lot. So you saw a lot of balls to right and to right center field that got out that really wouldn't have been home runs. They called them Cardinal Stadium home runs. And speaking of non-padding, remember going to games at old Cardinal Stadium, the wall out in the outfield was not padded, it was plywood. That was it. Plywood, no padding. And you, if you saw a guy running full bore to get a ball and banged into that wall, you see a guy go down now off a padded wall and he's kind of banged up. Think about that, going full bore into a, into a, uh, a plywood wall. <laughs> uh, times they have a changed, as it were, in baseball. Definitely something that, uh, that I'm sure they would not let fly these days. Uh, no. But 
a sign of the times and and of course the astroturf there and this was this was uh natural grass which was a big change for everyone watching and for everyone playing with the louisville franchise that's something that uh that hadn't been around obviously after coming from cardinal stadium and was very very welcome certainly by the players because the turf at the old ballpark was uh run down a little bit it wasn't probably maintained Certainly the, the dirt patches weren't maintained as well as they could have been because it was a state fairgrounds area and it wasn't a, a baseball stadium only. So those guys out there did the best they could, but it wasn't like uh, you know they were meticulous in taking care of that stuff. A lot of times guys would try to dig in. They couldn't dig in because it was just so darn hard. It was like rock. You, know, you couldn't <laughs> dig in at the plate because the stuff was so hard. It was not the case here at the new ballpark. No, Tom Nielsen the up until obviously his last day the the groundskeeper at louisville slugger field the head groundskeeper uh his last day was during the 2019 season as he moved on but uh, aaron fink has taken over but tom was the guy at the very start of this ballpark and and had it uh, looking immaculate that that grass that that new element for baseball fans throughout uh throughout the area had it looking great for this uh for this opener here well, he had, you know, Tom really had some obstacles to get this done because as they tried to work on the on the stadium itself, he was trying to get the field ready and ran into problems with with uh, people wanting to get other things done as opposed to the field. And there was always the argument that was made like, hey, we can't play a game without the field being ready. <laughs> we can maybe play the game without some of the suites being finished, but we have to have the field ready or it, it's a moot point. And so in the end, Tom did get his way and get things going. But uh, when he was hired, he was working out at Old Cardinal Stadium, too, and would have to go downtown and do his work down there and go back. He didn't have an office down there yet or anything. And uh, it, was, uh, it was a challenge for, for everybody involved getting this thing open and running on April the 12th of 2000. And you saw a couple seconds ago a shot of the the batter's eye, and you guys talked a lot about uh, maybe some guys were concerned about how see-through that would be and if that might affect batters, especially as you got further into the night when there'd be like headlights on cars driving by and and things like that. Do you you remember those conversations from guys, uh, from from Riverbats players being concerned about, about how the batter's eye would play going into that night? Yeah, that was one of the things that was always discussed because there was always uh, uh, two two lines of thinking, Nick. One was from a baseball standpoint. You see, there is a good shot of the of the backdrop out there, uh, a little bit thin. I think they, they added a second layer later on. They also added the tree line, which is out there and has grown yeah. now. But it was very thin, and you could see through it. Lights came through it. And so there was a discussion between – the, the business people who would say, hey, that's good enough. That's good enough. And the baseball people, which I kind of always fell on the baseball side of things because I was around the baseball people more than anybody else and would hear their complaint and agree with them saying, no, that's not good enough. You know, it needs to be darker because in the end, somebody could get really hurt if they can't see the ball because a headlight is shining through the hitter's backdrop because it's not dark enough, so a guy could get hurt. And, uh, you know, we can't have that. The same thing happened with um, the yellow line on the outfield wall. There was a huge discussion for years about a yellow line. Should we or should we not have the yellow line? And people said, well, what is the yellow line? What is that? 
that separates the field from the stands. It gives the umpires and the players a perspective of did the ball go over the fence or did it not? Did it hit the wall? Did it bounce over? And when you see a replay, uh, the yellow line kind of distinguishes and helps you identify where the ball is. And there were many people who said no to the yellow line because they didn't like the aesthetic look of it. And, of course, on the baseball side of things, which I, I mentioned I fell on, I would always say it's not about the aesthetic look. It's about what a baseball field should look like. And a baseball field has a yellow line, not for aesthetics, but for a reason. And that's to, to be able to distinguish where the ball hits. And I don't think we did it right away, but in the end, they finally did put a yellow line in. Yeah, they finally did. And and uh, something else that wasn't quite there, there was no uh, railings in front of the dugouts. Yeah, we'll get to that here in a little bit. You can see the, the dugout there coming back from break. Uh, those of course, would be added later, but but uh, open-faced dugouts. But here was a, a moment that a lot of folks were kind of waiting for, Deion Sanders digging in to be the first-ever batter at Louisville Slugger Field, the first-ever Riverbats batter at Louisville Slugger Field. Yeah, he got a, a lot of uh, hype coming up. You know, he had been a, a, a two-sport player uh, in football and with the Falcons, and, and, now, and then he tried his hand at baseball with the Reds, and he did a great job in terms of stolen bases and the like, and actually hit pretty well uh, the year before, I think, with the Reds. And uh, he was just full of energy, and boy, everybody wanted to talk to Deion Sanders. What do you what do you remember about him? I, I don't know how much you had a chance to, to talk to him, obviously limited time in Louisville, but, but what do you remember about him? I remember him being um, – I remember him being like Brandon Phillips, friendly if you went up to talk to him. But if you put a microphone in front of his face or wanted to do an interview, he became a different type of person. He, he just, you know, he had this persona about him, Neon Dion, and that's the, that's the uh, personality that he wanted to portray if you interviewed him. Now, if you just talked to him, you know, he was fine. Ask him about a ball. Hey, what happened on that ball out in left center field? And he would, you know, oh, I, I did this or I lost it here or I thought so-and-so was going to get it, whatever. And But if you, you know, you started a microphone, it was a, a different situation. I, I remember distinctly, uh, and it had to have been later that year. I, I'm trying to re remember if he played or what other years he played in, um, in Cincinnati in the minor leagues. I, I'm just trying to, I guess he... He, he, no, I think that was the only year he played in, in yeah, well, maybe the next right. year. He played the game. Yeah, but it, it was either that year, 2000 or 2001, we were playing in Columbus in the old ballpark, old Cooper Stadium. And the clubhouses were pretty cramped there. And I went in to get an interview with him, and he was sitting on the on a couch. And, they, again, it was a crowded quarters. And, and – uh, in the major leagues in the clubhouse, you go up to players and do an interview, and they say, sure, let's do the interview. You do it right there in front of their locker. There's other noise going on, and people are just used to doing that, and it's no big deal. But in the minor leagues, it was a big deal because there weren't as many media people around, and if you tried to do an interview in the clubhouse with other people around, inevitably – it got interrupted by a prank or something, and it just was not conducive to what we need to do, Nick. You know what I'm talking about. Absolutely. 
So something you still do today and something I certainly was doing back in those days was you try to get the player separated from everybody else so you can just do the interview and have them relax and you relax and get your four and a half or five minutes and, and move on. So he was sitting on the couch with a bunch of other players around him. And I went up to him and asked him if he would do what's going on here now. Well, there was a, there was some technical difficulties. You, uh, you lost the feed and then it had to come back. So they just went to a commercial break and then they come back on. You guys came back on here in a couple of minutes and said, Oh, sorry about the, uh, sorry for the technical difficulties, but, uh, yeah, I watched it to get ready. Okay. That's good, Nick. That's so see, it's, that shows you good preparation by you. Well, uh, I don't know I, if it was I, good. I, it watched was like, I watched like 10 minutes of it. Um, <laughs> well, anyway, getting back to the, to the Deion Sanders story. So I asked him to do the interview and he's like, sure. And I'm like, can we go outside the door here? There's a little back door in the back side of the clubhouse that was, uh, you step out the door and that was where, uh, there was a little bull. That was where the bullpen was. People, that's where the uh, the bullpen was attached to the clubhouse. Relief pitchers love that. You know, they could go into the clubhouse all night, three steps, and they were in the clubhouse. They loved it. And so I would always step outside this back door on a cement uh, curb. We do the interview and go back in. And he said, "No, no, we'll do it right here. If you want to do the interview, you got to do it right here." And so me being. Uh, uh, determined, I guess maybe it was a good word. Maybe other, another word was stupid. Uh, I said, okay. And I sat down there and tried to do an interview with him, but all of his answers were very short. He never looked at me the whole time when we did it. And, and it was awful. You know, it was just awful because he, again, had to keep up this persona. And I should have just said, no. Uh, well, if we can't go outside, let's maybe do it another time when you when you're free. But I didn't do that, and so I didn't like the interview. And uh, you know, it's just one of those things. It happened a lot with with guys that came down from the big leagues because they were used to doing them right in front of their locker. That's how you do it in the big leagues. But sure. in the minor leagues, you didn't do it that way. So uh, whenever I would try to interview a rehab player, a lot of times it happened like like that. That would that would be the outcome. So anyway, yeah. that's, that's a, that's a story I remember about Sanders. I, and again, I remember him also being a very friendly guy, uh, off the field. If you, if you saw him out somewhere after a game or something on the road in particular, he would always say hi to you. But, uh, like Brandon Phillips, he had a different, uh, a different air about him when he was around the media. And uh, and wanted to do that interview right there inside, which, as uh, as you said, rarely, rarely works out well. Uh, he did play 25 games with the Riverbats in 2000 and played 19 with Louisville in 2001. So okay. uh, did have a little bit of time both years. And uh, there, there were some technical issues, but but back with the, the telecast now and Chris Sexton at the plate with with Dion in scoring position. And of course, Dion, the answer to that trivia question, who scored the first run at Louisville Slugger field. And, uh, well, I, I think less people know the answer to who drove in the first run. And, and that was Chris Sexton. Yeah. Chris Sexton, a Cincinnati area native, uh, long time minor league guy, hard nosed player. Love this guy. 
And uh, he was a St. X high school in Cincinnati and a Miami Red Hawk player in, in college and, and uh, enjoyed him being around. And he didn't, like I said, he didn't get much playing time in the big leagues, but uh, we saw him, I guess, two or three different occasions uh, when the ballpark opened up uh, wearing a River Bats uniform and then a Bats uniform. I think the first two or three years he played and did a really nice job. And you, you commented at some point during the broadcast how it seemed like the Reds, maybe more than other teams, would, would always seem to find a way to, to sign guys from the Cincinnati area, like hometown guys. Well, there are so many good Reds, uh, uh, so many good Cincinnati area players. They did a thing up here in the uh, Cincinnati Enquirer last week, I believe, where they named an all-time uh, Cincinnati uh, baseball team. And the criteria were you had to have played in the big leagues, and they divided it be- between the west side of town and the east side of town. <laughs> and they had top-notch players on both. Here's the first hit by a, a Louisville player, at Louisville Slugger Field, an RBI single by Chris Sexton. And there he is. Sanders scores the first run. How about that? Scoring, standing up. And people were interested. You mentioned earlier, kind of coming back from the from the knee injury. People wanted to see how he would move. He he, he scored pretty effortlessly there. Yeah, we saw. He, who's that? He's got, the, and he's got the hat on with the helmet. You don't see that very often these days either. That's the old Hank Aaron look. Hank yes. Aaron used to do that. He's showing pretty good wheels right there, coming around third and scoring. You saw him giving Bobby Jones, the pitcher, uh, some trouble out at second base. Jones kept turning and trying to pick him off second. Couldn't get him yeah. down. Here's a guy. Here's a guy. Look at this. Brooks Kieschnick. Oh, what this a monster is, he's, he was. A monster? And what else are you going to do other than play baseball with a name like Brooks Kieschnick, right? Like, he's what a what a name two-way guy i always my uncle used to take me to games sometimes and he was infatuated with brooks kishnick out there uh maybe playing the outfield because of well because of some mannerisms between pitches we'll put it that way doesn't he have and it's somewhere in the bats media guide have one of if not the longest home run hit at louisville slugger field brooks kishnick I think he's got one of the top 10 and I should have the media guide in front of me right now, but I failed to uh, make sure I had one in front of me. I know uh, going into last year, Rob Stratton had the, had the record, yes. uh, but I think Kieschnick's up there somewhere. He is a, he is a big man. I'm trying to find, I do have last year's media guide sitting here and I'll page through and if I find it, I'll bring it up. But he was an interesting story because you know, he was. I think he was the college baseball player of the year, Kieschnick. Now here, here's we'll get back to the Kieschnick story. Uh, sights and sounds of the new ballpark, Nick. Look at this. I, I, I loved how they dropped this in. They they would run these kind of in the between pitches. That is Jeff Edwards right there. Um, he he was gone from the the bats. You know, as a, as an employee long before my time. Uh, but but certainly lives on in other ways in Louisville organizational lore. Big Monty Ball fan. Um, and, uh, yeah, just uh, a young-looking Jeff Edwards right there. That is fantastic. He was uh, he was George V's uh, assistant 
ticket manager, George Veith, and uh, Jeff was his assistant, and uh, he would get you a ticket on the bleachers or berm, wherever you wanted to get it, you know? He, he didn't care. He'd sell you a ticket. Bleachers or berm. Yeah. Yes, and you can see the, the, the kind of temporary lighting back there is the ticket booths, another aspect that weren't quite completely finished good enough to open it, but uh, stuff that certainly got a little more finished as, uh, as the, the days and weeks wore on. So Kieschnick, and I, and I found, by the way, the, uh, the longest home runs in ballpark history. Kieschnick, I think, was the college baseball player of the year is last year down at Texas. And uh, he was a pitcher, a tremendous pitcher in college and a tremendous hitter. Pretty much gave up pitching when he came to pro ball, but he made his mark in the big leagues actually some years later as a pitcher. Yeah. So uh... he has, Kieschnick has the seventh longest home run in stadium history. He hit it later this season in June, 469 feet. And at the time when he hit it, at the time he hit it, it was the the longest ever. Wow, that's good memory by you right there. Uh, well, I'm looking and, at uh, the number. I'm looking at it. So, well, well, yeah, but you remembered that he hit one of the longest ones. So that was a that was a pretty good, pretty darn good memory. Here we go. Uh, you guys did a guess. There was a guess the score contest on Wave3.com. You you went with eight two Louisville because because uh, you had seen the team. Started off four and two, and they, they, uh, they were able to score, and they did put some runs up uh, on this night, but but unfortunately came up a little short. Uh, the best Brooks Kieschnick bit from this particular game, he was on base at some point later in the game, and uh, Bob Dominey said, "Well, gonna have to be a a gapper to get that guy on, or something like that," implying how slow he was, and you said, "Well." I'm going to give Brooks uh, – I'll be sure to give Brooks your business card tomorrow when he asked me who said that about him on the game last night. I thought that was pretty good stuff. Uh, I could have thrown out the line, he speaks highly of you as well. That would have been, that had gone over well. <laughs> yes. Yes, I thought uh, I thought that was pretty good. He said he can move – he can move pretty well for a, for a bigger guy. Uh, it was uh, It was a good moment. That's something, you know – you know as well as I do, especially, uh, you know, especially at the the AAA level, the the game's always on, and I don't know about back then, but certainly now, the game's always on in the clubhouse, and uh, if guy if you say something a guy doesn't like, they'll hear it. You're gonna yeah, you're gonna hear about it later on, whether you said it or not. If it came over the broadcast, you're you're considered the broadcaster, and uh, certainly at the beginning of the season, they don't know your name. Hey, radio guy. Yes. You know, they, Till they learn your name, hey radio guy, you know, and they'll they'll complain about this or that. I, I looked up here, Nick Brooks Kieschnick, not that long uh, from here, 2003, 2004, pitched in the big leagues with Milwaukee. He was a hitter and yeah. a pitcher. He made a total of 74 big league appearances as a pitcher, and his career ultimately ended after the 2004 season. And uh, so, you know, he made he made the most of it. He tried them both. Yeah, and you know, the going into what it's supposed to be this season with like a designated two way guy, um, right? You know, if he could have if he could have played now, how much more valuable could Brooks Kieschnick have been? Somebody that might be able to be designated as a as a two way guy. It's, it's kind of interesting uh, how it's changing and how someone like him 
if he were going to be, um, you know, in the big leagues, whenever they get going in 2020, he might be able to, to have more value doing those things than he did back in 2003 and 2004. Well, in an era now of versatility, he would have been uh, sought after probably, as you mentioned, by a lot of different teams. But back in these days, uh, if you were a hitter, you were a hitter. If you were a pitcher, you were a pitcher. And uh, never should you cross over that line. You know, it was just a real, real rarity that you did that. So even though he was a pitcher of, of some note in college, up until 03, he never pitched in a, in a big league game. He may have pitched in some minor league games, uh, as as closing out a late game, you know, blowout game for or against, but never really pitched professionally until uh, two or three years from from now. And as we watch this game in two thousand, where he got a chance, so you just never cross that line. You know, now a lot of guys are doing it. Yeah. Kishnick would probably uh, had had a better career in the big leagues had he been able to do that back in those days. There was a. That guy was graphed as Vance Wilson, but I don't believe that was him. There was a late lineup change that you noted that uh, that I think some other folks may have missed um, on the telecast. Uh, they had the the lineup, and I think Norfolk of all games to do it made a made a very late lineup change that that kind of had everybody scrambling. You know, a game that's on TV, the first ever game at Louisville Slugger Field, and and John Gibbons, who was the manager of the Tides, had to make a a late switch that kind of threw everybody off a little bit, which was, I thought was pretty interesting. So they, they have that as Sammy Rodriguez, but I think this is Kevin Baez. Yeah, I think you're right now. Cause Rodriguez in my scorebook, you see, I have a little arrow yes. pointing to, to the uh, position above. I think he was actually in that spot and Baez was uh, in the, what would now be the seventh spot. I don't have the number written down because there was that change. Yes. Yeah, so Interesting very... to see the old scorebook and, and how things, uh, how you write things down. I can understand it because by and large, well, it is not by and large. It is my uh, scribbles. <laughs> Meanwhile, I've got no clue trying to go back through these and figure it out as, uh, as we've had to do many a times for our record keeping. And that was a tough play there at third. And, and, uh, Mike Bell couldn't quite make it. Good effort on it on a pretty slow roller. Kishnick couldn't quite uh, couldn't quite dig it there at first, but that was a, a really tough play to try to make. Yeah, there's a good look at Kish, big guy. Oh, let's see. This would be this would be Raphael Bornegal. Raphael yeah, Bornegal. Yeah. What was your favorite Raphael Bornegal game? This was a this was had to have been it because uh, I don't remember him playing in any other games. He went hitless in this game. I'm sure he played the entire season uh, for them, but no Rafael Bornegal stories. Yeah, uh, very uh, well, uh, none none would I would imagine pop to mind. But uh, this was, you know, this was the home opener. We talked about that. the The Riverbats came into this game at four and two, and. Uh, so you had actually seen this team play for six games. They had come back uh, from off the road. They had they had played the Tides and I think the Richmond Braves in a in a couple of series before before coming home and opening the ballpark and uh, you know uh, the big to do to open the ballpark. But you were actually 
interestingly, you were obviously away with the team for like the last six days when everyone was was probably freaking out about getting the thing open on time. It was probably the best thing because I was probably too opinionated about things that uh, I wanted or I thought that should be done. And uh, I should have just kept my mouth shut and gone about my business. But, you know, when you're young, you're you're uh, you think, you know, it all. And and so I probably uh, it was best probably for me to be to be out of town. You're right, though, Nick. We did start. Uh, the team did in Norfolk. Good pick there by second base. Who was that out of second base? That's Sexton. That was a nice pick on a bad throw. Yeah, that was that was a really you you guys talked about that a lot um, on how how great of a play that was. They almost turned the double play. That would have been really uh, really something. That was that was definitely a tough play. Osvaldo Fernandez. Look at this bad throw, but Sexton adjusts very well. And the, yeah, they almost double up the runner at first base. Sexton. He he was he knew what he was doing out there. Defensively, he was a big leaguer. He really was. Yeah, I mean, that was so smooth. That was, he made that play, which is, I mean, really, really tough, and he made it look like nothing. Yeah, you know, uh, interesting here. I'm looking at the Louisville Slugger Field Stadium first. It says first batter was Norfolk's Laurel Gonzalez, Uh-oh. but Curtis Pride is the guy that's uh, at the top of the lineup card. Yeah. You see that? I think, yeah. I think, uh, I think that might've been a little bit of an error. And it also says, what's the, Oh, the first, that says first win. Pardon me. Yeah. But the first batter it says was L'Oreal Gonzalez. And in the scorebook here, it has Curtis pride. Yeah. I, I think uh, that's something we might have to change in the uh, in the media guide i did not put that together but that's uh that's interesting we'd have to, we'll go, have to, we'd have to go back and look uh, at the start of the game again to make sure it was pride that pride well, was, was a left-handed batter he was listed as the as the leadoff guy for norfolk on the on the graphic so i'm i'm guessing it was him yeah we'd have to check for sure to make sure it was him at the plate which i'm sure it was so there, yeah. That's see now you, well, you find little well, things like that that you can correct. Yeah, L'Oreal Gonzalez is actually a pitcher, so he pitched in this game. He pitched in relief of Bobby Jones. So um, I think we can safely he say he, did not, yeah. yeah, he did not. Uh, he did not lead off the game at the you plate. Need to write yourself a note on that, Nick. Hey, we're get we're that, uh, get that corrected. We're knocking out multiple things here. Uh, on this podcast i'm i'm writing this down right now that we need to get that we'll pass that along and get that uh get that updated that's a good thing we i'm glad we did this well you know something good would come out of this we knew that yeah at least at that's least just one of the side one of the side things that, that came out of this yeah because it's Give always everybody- good to walk down memory lane that's for sure Oh, it's it's a ton of fun. Give everybody a, a if you have if you can a, a quick time code update on where we are in the video in case folks are are trying to follow along on the uh, on well, the video see, side. Approaching, we're approaching the fifty three minute mark. Fifty two fifty five right now is where we are. Fifty two fifty five and and we'll mark fifty three is where we are right now. And this Perfect. thing goes for about uh, three hours and 22 minutes. So we're at 53 yeah. minutes and we're an inning and a half in with Louisville yeah. leading one, nothing. 
not the quickest game there ever was. I think it was a three-hour, 37-minute game. We're not going to do the whole thing. We'll uh, we'll probably bail out after uh, after the sixth inning or so, um, just because this thing is a is a bear. And to completely pull back the curtain, um, this game. Oh, and there's there's the chicken. Uh, yeah, Gian an icon. Yeah. Yeah, and you. Yeah, I wanted... Go ahead. You. Uh, I mean, you couldn't make it in any better night. Opening a new ballpark on a, a low 50 degree night. So not terrible in April in Louisville. And you have the famous chicken there. It's all, it's all perfect. Yeah. He was, uh, he was quite the entertainer for years and years. And no matter how many times you'd seen his act, people still came out to see the chicken because it's like watching Seinfeld for people now, or some people say modern family maybe falls into this genre. Andy Griffith show certainly from years and years ago. The chicken is in that group. No matter how many times you see the act, it's still really funny. No matter how many times you see those shows, the episodes over and over, they're still really funny. Same with the chicken. You could see him, you know, you know, being a minor league guy for years and years and years. I probably saw the chicken 50 times, maybe 100 times, and always enjoyed the act. Oh, I did I wanted, too. I want to go back to seen a story. I want to go back. You mentioned the team started on the road in Norfolk. And yeah. there was uh, going into this 2000 season, a lot of hype from the local media because of the fact that the new ballpark was going to open and that the team was starting on the road for six games, then going to come home. So much so that Fred Cowgill, now he didn't, he worked for a competing station in town, still does, probably the senior sportsman in town, isn't he now? WLKY, yes, he he is certainly the uh, he he is the dean of uh, sports directors, and w- the the radio station that we were on at the time was uh, an either owned by or located in the LKY studios. Wow! So I saw a lot of Fred that winter, and Fred actually went on the road for the opening game down at Norfolk. And he did a live shot from down there and everything. And as I recall, uh, that game did not go extra innings, but it was incredibly slow-paced game. Something like 340 or, you know, it was a long, longer than this game, a long game to begin the season. Nobody likes games like that, but like you, like me, when you're around baseball for years and years and years, you just get used to it. You know, sometimes it happens. And you make the best of it. You don't really think about it that much, and you just carry on. Well, Fred was not a baseball guy in terms of covering baseball day in, day out. And I just remember when that game ended, and he came up to the radio booth, and the first thing he said to me is, does every game take this long? <laughs> and I, I said, no, Fred, they don't all take this long. This tonight happened to be that kind of night. He goes, my gosh, I don't know how you stand that. Like, well, you know, <laughs> you get used to it. But they all don't take that long. Fred was flabbergasted, though. Oh, that's Does every game take Thank- this long? Thankfully, they don't all take that long. Uh, but, uh, but some occasionally do. And, uh, you know, this was a National League-style game. This one was. Uh, the Tides were a Mets affiliate then, so the pitchers were hitting. Uh, of course, the Reds and Mets affiliate going at it, so. 
Um, that always may add to it a little bit because it adds uh, a little bit of strategy. Uh, you guys were talking about the ballpark and, and everything. And, and uh, you know, Bob Dominey mentioned that Lloyd Pink Gardner was at the game, the, the Fairdale legend, which I thought was awesome. And, and you mentioned the ticket, the ticket price range at this time. And uh, you said the tickets ran from three to $8. How about that? How about that? That's a cost of a beer now. It is. No doubt. You know, $8. I know that the Louisville franchise has always prided itself on low ticket prices. Back in those days and, and prior to 2000, back at Old Cardinal Stadium, and for years at the, at the, the new ballpark here, they prided themselves on having the lowest ticket prices in the minor leagues. Something they always pushed. And it, to their credit, you know, they, they worked hard at, at keeping the prices down and uh, packing them into this place. And you know, certainly they never drew a million again like they did back in the early 80s. But they had great attendance at Louisville Slugger Field. I mean, really, really good attendance for years and years. Still do. But back in those days, you, they were pushing 650000 or more. Yeah, great great numbers and you just saw a shot of the the berm and i know you guys talked about that mentioning and uh the the chicken of course uh giving uh giving it to him from the first base coach's box but you you talked to you guys talked about the berm bob talked about how it was like his favorite part of the ballpark and you were mentioning the uh the bleachers were the only and, and berm were kind of the only non-reserved seats in the in the ballpark as uh, we get a look at the bleachers there. And even those were, were pretty packed in. And you, you talked about the overlook too, and how that was something that the designers of the ballpark and the Riverbat staff modeled after uh, an area in Atlanta at Turner field. I still think to this day, the overlook deck is one of the great areas of the, of the ballpark down there because you are, literally on top of the outfield wall. I mean, you're right there. You know, you look down and the field is is right there. You can watch the ball coming at you. And uh, uh, many a party, they have the Thirsty Thursdays out there, had it for years and still have it to this day with the live music. And, and I think it's a great, great spot. Was then, still is now. And There's how about this? Only. Yeah, chat with, uh, with the, the Bats president at the time, a very youthful Gary Ulmer. How about that? How about Gary with Jackie Hayes? Yeah, Jackie Hayes going around the ballpark. John Belsky's in, involved in this uh, broadcast as well, uh, uh, going around the ballpark, just dropping those different segments in. And and uh, Gary, no doubt, would, would uh, find his way all around the ballpark that night, including the press box. And, and uh, what a... What what a great night! I know a, a lot of work on on his end and the ownership group to to make the stadium a reality in addition to the city. But um, we'll get into that here in a little bit. But you've got uh, I believe that is Osvaldo Fernandez, the pitcher at the at the plate here as uh, they get ready to turn the lineup over and back uh, to Deion Sanders. What do you what do you remember about Osvaldo Fernandez? Well, I remember he was one of the first Cuban guys that played for Louisville. Uh, the Reds thought highly of him. He was a little bit older. I'm trying to see if I had written down anywhere how old he was. 
uh, on my score sheet. I don't have it written there. I used probably at the time, I bet he was in his late 20s, which you know, from a baseball standpoint, getting to AAA uh, was a little late. You know, he'd come over from Cuba. and uh, But he pitched pretty well for the, for the Bath. I think he had uh, a, a modicum of success in the big leagues, but not a whole lot. He strikes I know this, he wouldn't have a lead again after right there. No. He had one nothing uh, after two, and he'd never see a lead again. Well, technically, he was still in when the Bats got their three in the sixth. To, uh, was he? Well, he may have. Yeah, I guess you're he right. He went, been, he went six. Yeah, he went six. Yeah, he was so still he a picture of record at the time. Yeah, he had a chance to get the win. Obviously, it didn't end up working out that way as the Bats, uh, River Bats, ended up uh, not not being able to pull this one out. You you also mentioned that. You you guys, you and Scott Reynolds and Bob Dominey kind of joked about it. Who would be the first to slip up and accidentally say Redbirds or Cardinal Stadium? And I don't I don't think any of you ever did it. it you, know, uh, you know, old habits. You, of course, had been around the River Bats already for a year before moving into the stadium. But, um, but I don't think anybody slipped up and dropped a Cardinal Stadium or anything like that, which was – which is really good with all the changes going into it with this being uh, game one at the new, at the new digs. Good for us. That means we must've been concentrating pretty well. You I think, by the I way, think every, well, I don't know if Bob's ever completely locked in, but you and Scott definitely were. <laughs> um, Osvaldo Fernandez that year was 33 and would make a uh, 14 starts for the Reds that year. Another 14, the following year, his big league career was over after that. But, uh, he didn't make his big league debut until 29. He was 33, making uh, the opening day start in 2000 for the Riverbats. I thought he was wow. 27. He was older than that. Well, and, uh, you know, oftentimes, you, you kind of talked about it, when, when the guys come over from, uh, from Cuba and get their chance in the United States, and especially back then, uh, a lot of times it would be somebody that, that was a little bit older because they had probably pitched – professionally in in cuba for a little bit of time nick that's a great shot right there the overhead shot of the ballpark but it's great because of the the surrounding area really hadn't been developed yet across the street from maine across the street there where the uh i don't know what the name of that building is that has the point at the top yeah uh, is that park or whatever that might be there that building none of that was was there yet it was all barren around the ballpark and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. That was the the easternmost point of Maine, and that was kind of the beginning of that what what five or so block development leading up to Second Street and uh, what is now uh, uh, Yum Center. Yeah, it, this was really the catalyst. And before we jump more into that, uh, you saw the the chicken with the small chickens. And uh, Bob said, those are all locally grown kids. And that, that made me crack up as I was watching it for some reason. That really that line really tickled me. Those are all locally grown kids. I thought that was hilarious. Speaking of locally grown kids doing that, I'll tell a tale. Our son, Dan, who uh, is an actuary now, and we're very proud of him in, in Louisville, works for Mercer and has been down there for years and years since he graduated from college. But when uh, he was younger... And the team was out at Old Cardinal Stadium, and the chicken would come in. At one point, when Dan was probably eight or nine, he was a little chicken. Ah, he he, he dressed up in the uniform and followed the little chicken around out on, and followed the chicken around on the field. He was a little chick. 
He told how me excited do you, I was going to say, how excited do you think he's going to be when he, if he ever listens to this and hears you telling that story? Or someone, one of his friends hears it and says, hey, your dad was talking about you being a little chicken one time with the San Diego chicken. He'll be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And our other, one of our other children, Amy, who uh, got married last summer and uh, uh, is now pregnant, actually, with a, a grandchild of ours. I don't know. She might not want me telling that either. But, uh, well, congratulations. The, yeah, thank you. When the team had the, uh, the hockey team, you know, the River Frogs, and at Christmas time one year, uh, I happened to have played high school hockey so I could skate. So they asked me to be a Santa on ice. I dressed up in a Santa Claus uh, uniform and went skating out on the ice. And I and Amy uh, came up to the glass because Diane knew it was me, but Amy didn't know it was me, and brought her up to the edge of the glass. And I uh, stuck my head over there and said, hello, Amy, what do you want for Christmas? And she was out of her mind. You know, her eyes bugged way out. And, <laughs> She was freaking out, you know, and uh, only later on did she learn that that was dad dressed up in the, in the Santa Claus outfit. No, I would love, uh, I would love some video of that. That would be uh, phenomenal. You, you mentioned the hockey team and you guys referenced this several times too. Uh, the Louisville Panthers were in action on this night, getting the playoffs going. Uh, they were in a first round series against the Kentucky Thoroughblades in Lexington, the same night that, uh, that this opening game at Louisville Slugger Field was happening. This was a big night in the, with in, in the office in the in the franchise with uh, with the hockey team and with uh, and with the Riverbats opening Louisville Slugger Field. Well, now at that time though, I don't believe that was the team was owned by the baseball team anymore. Were they when they were in AAA uh, AAA maybe, ho- hockey? I think they had been I, sold. I wasn't sure. I thought they weren't, but you guys did bring up a couple of different times about the, uh, about the Panthers and gave a couple of score updates. And uh, somebody brought up the, the team in Lexington, somehow the Thoroughblades or something. And you said, Hey, 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 that's the enemy now tonight. And uh, I wasn't sure if the team was still owned by the same group or if it, uh, if it wasn't. So I think uh, it had been, sold because the uh, the uh, river frogs were sold after three years uh, to a group down in Florida. So this would have been the second year, I believe, that uh, the organization did not own the hockey team. And they were the AAA Panthers playing out of Freedom Hall. And in fact, the name I mentioned earlier, our good friend Dave Wilson, he, he ended up being their play-by-play guy there the last of that season because the fellow they had, something had happened and he couldn't continue. And uh, Dave Arnold, another good friend of ours, used to be an official scorer out at uh, uh, Cardinal Stadium and Louisville Slugger Field. He was running that team. He was a GM, and he brought Dave in because Dave had been a voice of the uh, River Frogs, and Dave was the voice of the Panthers there at the end. Very very cool stuff uh, with with trying to do both, and here we are in in this third inning, and and this is where the uh, the tides are able to to go in front, getting two as Valdo uh, Fernandez here a little bit. Um, but we we talked about the ballpark, and and you referenced it a little bit, and I don't want to talk over um, a great cutaway with Jackie Hayes that's coming up here in a little bit and you'll you'll see why I love it when it when it comes up but 
there was a lot to getting this place. Obviously, Jerry Abramson, we mentioned it earlier, was a big catalyst uh, in in a lot of this. Really envisioned the ballpark going downtown and at the waterfront and and doing exactly what it ended up doing and really helping sort of be a catalyst downtown. Um, but you know, the, the, the team, the river bats were really in a pretty good position because, um, there was a lot of talk about the stadium finally getting done for U of L U of L football. And they were able to move to the new Cardinal stadium after the 1997 season at old Cardinal stadium. And, um, there was talk about trying to get the 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 stadium done down on the waterfront. A couple of uh, a couple of companies that the city had to take care of. Uh, Brindley Hardy had the warehouse that now serves as like the the kind of facade and the the gorgeous front door, if you will, to Louisville Slugger Field. And and the Louisville Scrap Metal Company had a lot of the land there that the the city kind of had to negotiate and help out with with moving and and kind of uh, acquire all that. Uh, but with the football team moving out of Cardinal stadium, the, the fair board and had come up with a plan where they were going to maybe spend as much as $20 million to make a lot of upgrades to old Cardinal stadium and add in, uh, some suites and maybe a new, uh, press box and, and maybe just retool the whole thing for, just a, a baseball only facility, take out the football bleachers that you referenced earlier. What do you remember about that? And, and the team trying to, you know, come to grips with deciding whether you stay put and, and maybe a newly uh, renovated place with, with football gone or move to this, uh, to this downtown uh, waterfront stadium where from reading about it, uh, the rent was going to be higher for the team, but, um, obviously would be kind of a, a center jewel of, uh, of, of the city and, and right in the middle of downtown. Well, Nick, I'll say this about, about what you're talking about. In order to get a stadium like this built, you have to have a lot of visionaries, a lot of people who can envision great things because of taking a chance. This was certainly taking a huge chance because uh, the franchise had uh, a nice ballpark out at the fairgrounds at Cardinal Stadium. Free parking out there for everybody. You know, that was a big thing, still is. Free parking out there, all the parking space you needed. And the the easy thing to do would have been to stay out there. I, at the time, uh, was a proponent of simply renovating Cardinal Stadium, making it a baseball-only ballpark. And you had the, the structure in place. You had the parking. Uh, everybody was used to coming there to go to the games. I was a proponent of that, but they were visionaries, much smarter than me, certainly, who who said, no, 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 we want to start this renovation of downtown. And they envisioned a ballpark being the beginning of it. And it turned out to be exactly the way they thought it was going to, to be and the way it was going to work out. It started the renovation that led up to Second Street. And uh, it always didn't go as smoothly as they liked, but boy, it's really come along great. And and kudos to the people who can think like that. There's our good friend Bob Ramsey in the back. Yeah, this, the, this is the cutaway I wanted to to get to. The uh, he really looks almost the exact same as he does in this uh, in this video. Uh, he 
obviously runs the music at the ballpark and and he talked about he's the organist and he talked about how they were adding a, a video component to his job now with the with the video board at the new place as opposed to kind of the the just lights at Cardinal Stadium and so uh, Bob said he was either going to he, Bob said I'm either going to be a jack of all trades or a jackass and I thought that was a perfect Bob Ramsey quote you know as you mentioned Bob is still the music man out there to this day and he does he looks exactly the same with that long ponytail and and uh, he's a funny guy back then he's a funny guy now and it's always good to talk with Bob and uh, he goes back to the old stadium also uh, <clears throat> another yeah. another family related story our son Dan who was the uh, little chick years ago was in the music big time when he was younger uh, so much so that he ended up playing the flute in high school and college because he was a huge fan, like his father, me, of uh, Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull. And he listened to so much Tull music, he loved the flute, and he ended up playing the flute. And he would go to the games. He wasn't always a big sports fan, but he loved going to the games because he would sit with Bob Ramsey. You know, Bob used to sit halfway up the stands at the old stadium uh, right before the red seats began. And that was his music perch, and that's where he would play. And Dan would go, and instead of watching the game, he'd go watch Bob play the organ and, and talk music <laughs> with Bob. That was his thing. So we could get Dan to go to the game by saying, hey, you can go sit by Bob. Bob didn't care. He loved it. Oh, Bob is great. He's on the he, – well, he's he's a legendary keyboardist in the – in the city, uh, a legendary musician has played a lot of big time gigs. is uh, is on the wall for like the the wall of fame down at Stevie Ray's, just down the street yeah. from the ballpark. Um, he is he is a legend and another legend sitting in that booth. And they never did uh, as the Tides wrap up their three run inning here to go in front. Uh, the they never had an interview with him, and I I, I he was employed by wave three at the time still uh and it still is charles gasaway the the public address announcer you could hear him in the background quite a bit making the announcements throughout the broadcast and introducing the batters uh and and still the pa voice of louisville slugger field he's still there well you know it really probably would have been difficult to do a uh uh cut in with charles because he's talking the whole time you know, sure. only time he's really not talking is when the action is going on and then he's immediately back at it. And he's locked in uh, all the time, Charles is. So to pull him away to do it. Now, if it could have been done, Chris Perante and, and Bob Dominey and those guys could have gotten it done because he was he was their guy. You know, like you said, he worked at Wave 3. He still does. So they could have probably convinced him to do it. But, you you know, Charles, he gets locked in there. He doesn't like it when people come in that booth that aren't supposed to be in there for a working reason. He didn't even like it when Dale Owens, the general manager of the team, would come in there and sit and uh, take in what was going on in the ops booth. He, he just assumed it would just be the people that were working there. I can understand that. No, I think uh, I think we can all relate to that a little bit. But uh, Charles uh, is the best and, and still – Still rocking it down at Louisville Slugger Field today. Wanted to make sure we got that in. Uh, the commercials are obviously still in this thing. And I got a kick out of watching some of these commercials, like this Budweiser commercial, the whole what's up thing. That was yeah, the yeah. that was a craze. Takes you back. That was 20 years ago. That's hard to believe. It was 20 years ago when that was all going on. And still, still solid today. 
yeah yeah still solid um now uh Deion sanders getting his second crack at it in the in the bottom of the third and uh want to go back to what you mentioned a second ago so you when all when this decisions were being made uh especially like 1996 you were of the mind to just stay put at, at the fairgrounds I, I just thought the infrastructure was in place uh, w- with Cardinal Stadium, the free parking, which I thought was great, that people were used to coming to the fairgrounds and watching games. Uh, they knew where to go, how to get around. Downtown was a kind of a mystery to a lot of people because, let's face it, unless you worked down there, you really didn't go downtown. There wasn't a whole lot of reason to go downtown at the time. And I just thought we were creating problems that we didn't need to create. Again, I'm not a visionary, but people who – put this together and ultimately made it happen are and kudos to them for getting it done. But that was not me. And I just thought if we just renovated Cardinal stadium, which I think at the time was not going to be anywhere near the cost of the, of the ballpark, which uh, I don't know what it was, 30 million or something like that at the yeah, time, like 30 to 35, I think is what between uh, building it and, and having to, to buy the land is, is about what it ended up costing somewhere in that range. So maybe for a third or maybe half the cost, they could have renovated Cardinal Stadium, made it a baseball, uh, primary baseball-only stadium, used it for other, other events. They could have put sports turf in and used it for high school football. They could have used it for high school baseball, college baseball. Remember, L baseball was playing there at the time before they built Patterson Field. They were playing there also. So a lot of things were going on out at, out at old Cardinal stadium. And I just thought let's renovate this, make this a really cool fairgrounds ballpark. And that would be better. But uh, the powers that be along with the city uh, fathers, uh, no, this is, this is the start of what we need to renovate downtown. And it turned out to be the exact right thing to do. Uh, and it's been uh, a, a jewel for 20 years now. It sure has. And and there was a, a column from Pat Forty um, shortly after, I think maybe the groundbreaking or, or after there was a press conference, you know, where the stadium was going to be sort of laying out the plans. And he talked about how he was kind of a skeptic at first and how he wasn't a huge baseball fan, but there was a good uh, line in the column in the Courier Journal. He said, baseball needs aura. It needs atmosphere. It needs something you can't find at Cardinal stadium. And in his mind, he just thought the whole setup down there on the waterfront with, with the, the Brindley Hardy warehouse building and, and uh, kind of the, the older time feel and the, the more pure baseball feel of that ballpark gave it something you couldn't quite get at the fairgrounds. And um, as it turns out, he, along with, with several other folks ended up being right. And it's, it's been a roaring success and, and really has, revitalized the area and you know the the uh despite the fact that the franchise had made the playoffs in in uh, 1998 with milwaukee didn't make it in 99 they had had a string of years at the end with the cardinals where things really weren't going well so they they wanted a winner and the reds triple a team had always been a winner they they'd made the playoffs I don't think they made the playoffs in 98 or 99, but they'd always had 500 teams or better 
They made the playoffs a decent amount. And so not only were you getting a new ballpark, you're getting the best affiliate that Louisville could possibly get, but you were also getting a team that was used to winning. And that was, you know, all three of these things coming together, it couldn't have been any better for the local baseball fan to kind of reignite the love of the game. Uh, that team didn't make the playoffs that year uh, in 2000. They, they were in it, you know, a, a decent amount of the season, but in the end did not make the playoffs that year, but did win it all the following year, which was, of course, interrupted by uh, 9-11 incidents, but uh, had a, a really decent amount of success in the first 10 years of being the Reds affiliate. Yeah, the the three peat oh eight oh nine and ten and and uh, well had a winning record even in twenty eleven and uh, that was the last time the franchise had a winning record was that twenty eleven season but yes uh, a ton of success just just adding to it and Rick Sweet many of those years as the skipper of uh, of the Louisville club as well uh, one of the mentioned it earlier but just enjoy checking out a lot of these uh a lot of these commercials we've seen the fazoli's commercial a couple of times the the sandwiches the submarinos there's a great jingle if uh, if you haven't watched this uh with the original audio encourage you to go back and do that because the the fazoli's submarino jingle will get stuck in your head i have not been able to stop uh <laughs> doing it since i watched this the other day so uh submarino it or eating submarinos well uh I'm, I'm a big fan of submarinos in general but but mostly just uh just singing it uh top of the fourth inning here and, and something you guys talked about in this top of the fourth um this was a big year for ballpark openings 2000 was obviously louisville slugger field which we're talking about here but also, uh, you mentioned how Enron Field just opened in Houston, which is kind of funny to look back at, at Enron being the, the name of that ballpark. That did not end well. Uh, Pac Bell uh, had just opened in San Francisco and Comerica Park, much to the, uh, uh, to the delight of Bob Dominey, just opened in Detroit. So a lot of new ballparks were opening in this, uh, in this year 2000. And really, what were we, uh, two years away from Great American Ballpark opening, the Reds were still playing at this time at uh, Great American, or rather at uh, at uh, their old ballpark. Which I'm trying to think, what was it? Synergy Field was was the yes. name those last couple of years. But they were what two years away from opening a new ballpark up there. So a lot yeah, of baseball kind of, construction. Yeah, it was kind of a boom. Uh, you also mentioned how uh, a longtime Louisville baseball fan had called you to say that it's, it was the fourth ballpark to open in Louisville. And then you guys made fun of, of Bob, um, Dominey. Uh, you made fun of him saying, Oh, you were probably when they opened there, the, the first one back in like the 19, the early 1900s and stuff, which was, which was pretty hilarious. But, uh, who was a that lot called? Cool... Ron Coons? Is that Ron what, Coons who would call? You, and told you us never said it. You never said who it was. I assumed it was probably Ron, but you never actually said the name. And uh, and I was curious if you remembered who would have called you then, but I was guessing it was probably Ron. If anybody would know that kind of information, it would be Ron. So, yeah, I would say it was probably him. Maybe I had a note 
about it, and I couldn't find the note. That's why I didn't uh, bring up his name. Maybe but so. Ron knows more uh, history about Louisville baseball than anybody I know. There's no doubt about it. Um, it, it had to have been him uh, mentioning that, and I, I thought that that was uh, was pretty cool. And and uh, you know, it really is a, a day in history to be able to to see this place open and just looking around you you see the uh, the gray back there behind and we talked about that earlier the the tunnel right there behind home play with people uh kind of kind of crowding in that 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 hasn't changed a lot getting ready to to come on the field uh, that's stayed pretty similar over the years no advertisements there back behind the plate so they can be in the uh in the video feed that has changed they've greg uh galliet is has found a way to, to use that as more inventory the uh, as they do in ballparks across the country, putting those those advertisements back behind the catcher so you get it on the the center field camp, which uh, which is cool. But back then it was just uh, completely blank back there. That's that's kind of a unique look to to not have any ads back in the uh, in the camera shot behind the catcher. You know that looked like. Uh our good friend James Breeding standing back there in the tunnel, didn't it? I think I mean, it might be get a James. Good shot of him, but it looked like James standing back there. He was, uh, I don't know if he was an assistant GM back in those days or what his title might have been. Look at Chris. He's getting all over the ballpark, and he's doing everything. He really worked hard yeah, that night. He sure did. They they had a lot of great stuff. The, the carousel, you talked about how it was the first ballpark you'd ever seen with a with a carousel in it. So that was... And, and remains a very unique feature that you don't really see other places other than uh, other than at Louisville Slugger Field. Well, since then, what, 20 years have passed. I've been to a lot of different ballparks since then, and I've still never seen a carousel anywhere else. It is unique and uh, a real drawing card, I think, for the ballpark because inevitably young kids, they can't stay focused on the game for two and a half, three hours. So you need to have some other things for them to do, and the carousel is certainly one of those. Yeah, the playground's over there, too. Uh, something else I wanted to bring up with you, and this is a little bit off of the baseball path, but since we are talking about this place opening four months into the year 2000 or three and change, do you do you remember any, any concern working with uh, the, the baseball team? Was there, was there any talk about you know, why 2K and people were worried about, you know, uh, with with uh, with the calendar flipping to the year 2000, that that computer systems might just go down because they wouldn't be able to handle the fact that it was the year 2000 and they, they weren't sure how stuff was going to react. Do, do you remember there being any sort of like why 2K concern uh, amongst the the team and the staff and anything like that in terms of maybe computer systems or, or stuff like that back then? Not in April. And there may have been some with the folks who worked in the operations booth who were doing all the computer work. But I remember there being a lot of that in, in October, November, December of 99, leading up to uh, the turn of the century. And then even in January, some, but uh, by and large, when nothing occurred, uh, it was kind of forgotten. Although, like I said, I, I would imagine that Bob Ramsey and, and all those people in the operations booth who relied on computers to do their job may have had some concerns early on because, remember, everybody was trying to get everything together 
at the same time. The construction people were trying to get their work done. Tom Nielsen and his crew were trying to get the field ready to go. The baseball people were trying to get on the field and do some pregame work and all that. All the people in the ops booth are trying to get their stuff ready to go. We were coming in from out of town trying to get set up in the radio booth, get the TV folks in there and get them all ready to go. Uh, I know when 11 o'clock or so rolled around that night, everybody took a big, deep breath and was like, wow, we got through it. We got through opening night. Didn't really even matter that the, uh, the game had turned out to be a loss because they're just glad that everything turned out the way it turned out, which was good. It, it was. And, and uh, the, the great thing about baseball you take that deep breath at 11 o'clock and then you're like, Oh, this is the first game of a seven game homestand, uh, which, uh, which I thought was, was pretty awesome. And not only the first game of a seven game homestand, this was a Wednesday. You guys referenced it on the broadcast coming up that Saturday was thunder over Louisville, which has become the premier event at the ballpark year in and year out. Um, what do you remember about the first thunder downtown? You, you brought that up, and I started uh, going back in my memory, and I, I really don't have much memory at all of that. I didn't have a whole lot of responsibilities on Thunder Day. I would do the game, and uh, by and large after that, even though I didn't leave the ballpark, I really didn't have a whole lot of other responsibilities. So I kind of walked around and took in the night, uh, would join my family and, and watch the fireworks or – you know, meet greet, meet and greet uh, out in the bar area and walk around and see people. And I didn't have much uh, real work to do. I don't remember a whole lot. Uh, in fact, I don't remember really anything about that first Thunder, although I do, as I recall, the weather was pretty good that first year. Now, I could be dead wrong in that, but I think the weather was pretty darn good that first year. And that's uh, that's always the hope you're in and you're out. I know now it's obviously uh, a day that that there's a lot of work and a lot of um, a lot of planning goes into every year and and uh, curious how it was that first year obviously you hadn't done one on the waterfront before so no way to really know I guess advanced ticket sales and I'm guessing those went very well uh, but but no way to really know what the whole day is going to be like you know from from really morning until late night when it all ends and uh, interesting that that was going to be the first one and no one really knew completely what to expect. So, um, but obviously it, it went very well and, and has continued to be a, a great tradition every year since uh, right there on, uh, on the waterfront. I think Nick though, that they really felt it could be even better than it was out at Cardinal stadium because of the fact that they were going to allow people with a wristband to come in and out, go to the riverfront, come back to the stadium one of the big things they push then and still push now are, quote, real restrooms. You know, you don't right. have to go into a portalette to use the bathroom. You go to the real restroom at the stadium. And that was something they pushed big and has always been a, a huge factor in buying a ticket to the game at Louisville Slugger Field because you've got real restrooms. You've got, quote, real concessions and, and, and a, a real seat. And you can see the fireworks incredibly well from the first base side. All those folks you can see now on the third base side here inevitably would try to move over to the right field side so you could see the fireworks over the bridge out beyond the uh, the left field wall of the stadium and on the river. 
So everybody would move over to the one side. But it, what it turned out to be, and it always happened this way, uh, the games, this game lasted three hours and 34 minutes. The games a lot of times would last three hours plus. But for some reason, on Thunder Day, the games would always be the quickest game of the year. You know, 220, 235, 240 would be a long game. And for some reason, that always happened. The one day that the the non-baseball people, the front office, wouldn't have minded the game going longer, it went short. So that just meant more time to fill in with other events. There was always a band that would come out and play in the outfield. They had a number of different events that were going on. But they wouldn't have minded the game going longer. It never did, unfortunately, go longer. In fact, there was talk at one time about playing a doubleheader. Instead of starting at uh, 2, start at noon and play a doubleheader and then not play on Sunday because the day after Thunder inevitably was a bad day for attendance, bad day for the workers because the team had been there, and I'm talking about stadium workers and front office workers, because they had worked you know, 15 hours the day before. Then to come back and do it again on Sunday with another game, everybody was so exhausted, and they thought, well, let's try to play a doubleheader. But there was always the concern that maybe it would take too long, and it would cut into the band and cut into the other things that they had to present. So that idea never really took off, although it was thrown out, it seemed like, every year. Hey, let's let's start at noon and play a doubleheader. I know a lot of people over the years uh, that would have welcomed not having to go there on that Sunday, uh, not only from the 15-hour day, but then the, you know, the long night. The, the, the festivities, festivities that surrounded me. Yes. Well, well, I would yeah. count myself as part of that group. If they just said, hey, we're not going to have to play on Sunday, that'd been, uh, that'd been great. Play a doubleheader on Saturday, an off day, and a day to oh. recover before you start in again on Monday. But it, it never turned out to be the case. No, never did. And, and uh, has always been that, that one game uh, uh, since. Although I think back then it was starting at one fifteen. It's now a 2 o'clock start, so moved it back a little bit to maybe help with some of that here. Uh, Mike Bell, obviously part of that great Bell baseball family at the plate, and uh, his brother David now managing the Reds. He strikes out, and uh, that that brings in Jason LaRue here, uh, who was a guy that was, uh, you know, making his way to the big leagues and ended up being a staple in the big leagues and with the Reds for a while. What do you remember – uh, about uh, about Jason LaRue and, and interacting with him. Big-time country music guy, Jason LaRue. Uh, kind of a rough exterior, but another guy that was a friendly enough guy to talk to. Uh, didn't really care to do interviews. He would do them. Uh, you know, he was just a baseball guy through and through, I think, and uh, didn't much care for... Uh, uh, pomp and circumstance, if you will. He just liked to go out and play, do his thing. I, I, I'm trying to think of the the song that he later brought to Cincinnati. Whenever they'd win a game, they they played a certain song in the clubhouse, and I think he was the one who brought it. It was a country song, but I, do, do you does that ring a bell to you at all? Yeah, I, I don't remember what it was though. Let's see if we can fire up. It was a, a Willie Willie Nelson? Might have been a Willie Nelson. 
might have been a Willie Nelson song. I can't remember what it was, but he he, he brought that to uh, the Reds clubhouse. Um, he came down later on rehab. Yeah. Uh, went up to the Reds later on, came down for rehab, and was always uh, more approachable. It's funny. He was more approachable when he came back from the big leagues in terms of interviewing than he was when he was coming up. I think guys, when they go to the big leagues, get used to doing interviews. It's really part of the the makeup of a, of a day-in, day-out big leaguer's life. And not that they do them every day, but they do a lot of them, or little sound bites for TV here and there. So he was more used to that. So when he came back, more agreeable to, uh, to do interviews. Because I, I always thought, from the radio guy's perspective, if a guy comes down on rehab, he is, you want to have him on the air because the fans want to hear from him. How's it going in the big leagues? How's his injury progressing? Particularly if he's played here before with the franchise, what's it like to be back? Uh, and there's that tree line that we were talking about too. Yeah. Or where, where the tree line would be. I can't, those are pretty small bushes at the time, small trees. They grow pretty big now. But uh, so I always felt an obligation to put guys like that on, Deion Sanders, Jason LaRue, whoever the guys may be that would come down. I felt an obligation to try to get them on. Couldn't always get them on. Sometimes they wouldn't do it or you just, the timing of it wouldn't be right because if they were down there working on something, they weren't going to, they weren't going to stop what they were doing to make time for you to do an interview. You had to kind of work around their schedule. Uh, guys in the broadcast business know that one of your main, one of the main things that you do in your job is, wait. You're yes. always waiting for someone to do an interview. You want to do a, a five minute interview and it may take you an hour to do that interview because you've got to go down and set it up. Then you got to go down there and wait, wait until they are done doing whatever they are doing until they finally make time for you. And so a lot of your time is just waiting, 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 waiting. Uh, I remember we had an incident like that uh, last year. We were waiting, waiting, waiting on somebody, and it never happened. We had to scramble and get somebody else. But, you know, you're always waiting to try to get your guy. And people don't understand when they hear the interview, yeah, five minutes, it's great. It went well. But they don't know all that other time that you waited and waited and waited trying to set it up. But that's just a, a little broadcast geekdom for you right there. Yeah. Part of it, you're trying to let them do their job. They're trying to help you do yours, and you just have to find the right time when everybody's available. And Sometimes it's right now, and sometimes it's come get me in a couple of hours, and and uh, and that's what we we work around, and it's it's all part of it. Um, you know that there was you guys mentioned this too, and I, I think Chris comes back on on wave three, and, and, and no bathroom issues for this opening night. They said uh, the lines there weren't bad, but there were some long concession lines uh this night and they'll i think show those they talked to a couple of guys that said yeah i've been waiting an hour to get my hot dog just can't wait to get that and and uh you made the comment they want to make sure they do everything right not just do them and you know try to get everything um completely up and running with the concession stands and stuff like that and obviously that was not something you were terribly concerned about being uh in the broadcast booth trying to call the game but uh, do you remember 
any feedback on those sorts of things coming out of that that first game or, or maybe the first homestand? I know the first game would be a quick turnaround with another one coming the next night, but do you remember anybody uh, talking about those sorts of things in, in the next day or two after this? Actually, I do remember people being awfully happy and proud of the fact that there weren't incredibly long lines, that they were able to keep things moving at the concession stands. They knew it was going to be a sellout, and so they were able to plan for that. Oftentimes, you know, every game at a ballpark, whether it be a minor league ballpark or a big league stadium or an arena, they estimate what their crowd is going to be that, like that night, and they have that much food and that many workers assigned to work that night based on what they think the attendance is going to be. So if it goes over, then that's when you get the long, long lines. Or if it goes under what you think it's going to be, then people come out to work and inevitably then are sent home. But this night, they knew it was going to be a full house. So they had everybody on hand to work. And probably if you were a worker for the concession company at that time, you wanted to work on opening night because it'd be part of history. You wanted to say that you worked the first game ever at the new ballpark in downtown Louisville, Louisville Slugger Field. So uh, I think that probably aided a lot in what they were doing because they were totally 100% prepared for the crowd that they were going to get. There we are doing the game. There, look at you right there. Do Bob you remember any of the, my glasses on? Yeah, yeah. Got the tie on, looking good, separating from the turtleneck jacket look. Um, <laughs> do, do you remember anybody else up there? Or do you remember, I guess, you obviously knew you were going to be doing this game on, on TV, uh, do you remember when that came about and, and how long you knew that, that you were going to be doing this one on TV rather than the radio? You know, I, I don't exactly remember when it all came about. I think it was a given. Uh, Dale Owens, uh, the late GM, who hired me back in the late 80s to uh, be the voice of the franchise, was in charge of, was in charge of talent for radio and television when we did it. And I think there probably was a discussion that winter uh, once they found out that the game was going to be on television, on Wave, as to who would do the game. And, and Dale was a big proponent of having a baseball guy do the games. And so I think f from the get-go, he felt like I should do the game. And Wave really didn't have a guy that could do play-by-play. -play. Bob was the sports director, and uh, he was not a play-by-play -play guy. So I don't know that he uh, argued uh, to try to get himself into that chair. I think they were, in order for the whole broadcast to come off as well as it could, I think they wanted someone with experience in that chair. So I don't recall there ever being a real discussion other than maybe asking me, do you want to do the TV or would you prefer to stay on radio? And I think I, I remember saying, no, I think I should do the TV for this. I, I mean, uh, we want to put our best foot forward. And I think at the time I was our, our the best foot, so to speak. And so I went over and, and I'm pretty sure Sean was doing the, uh, Sean uh, Moth was doing uh, the radio for us that night. There's an interesting part of the ballpark now right there, that, that yeah. little nook out in right center field. You see a lot yeah. of ballparks have those kind of things now. I love that out there in the ballpark. still there, obviously. Yeah, it gives it a little character. And I, I think... That was another fly ball. There, there were several where, uh, 
you know, particularly Scott and Bob were commenting about, you know, I thought that one was going to fly a little bit better. And I think a lot of the balls that got in the air to left and we've, we've learned over the years that that wind is often blowing in off the river. And sometimes it's tough to, you have to really get them to get them to go out to, to left and try to hit them out that way. And uh, it's just, you know, really cool to, to hear you guys kind of just starting to, to figure that out uh, as, uh, as the ballpark was just opening. It, it's, you know, it's stuff we take for granted now, but, but back then you had no way of knowing because it was the first time that there was ever a game there. A couple of things about that, Nick. One is you just saw the temperature was 50 degrees, so it wasn't a, a light air night. It was kind of a heavy air night, and uh, the ball wouldn't fly well anyway at 50 degrees. And then secondly, what you what you talked about, the wind would blow in from left field. During the pregame and during batting practice, you know, it always blows in from right field. But then when the game starts and it gets a little bit later, it seems like the wind blows out toward right field. So it changes from pregame to game. That's why a lot of the best balls ever hit in that ballpark are the right field. Yeah, no doubt about it. It's uh it's something we've seen a lot over the years and and just now uh at this time figuring starting to figure it out with with the first game. Uh something I don't think we'll get to see during what we're going to cover here just because of how long this is and we don't want to run it the full almost four hours, but um, Norm Charlton ended up pitching in this game and I don't think he came in until the eighth. So I don't think we'll make it that far, but uh, one of the nasty boys uh, was just signed back by the Reds at this time as a 37 year old. What do you remember about uh, Norm Charlton being around uh, with this crew? I remember him being an icon, you know, he's like, wow, one of the nasty boys, Norm Charlton was, I think he had a, he came in with a long trench coat type thing on and he had the long flowing blonde hair. And it's like, man, look at this guy, Norm Charlton, part of the 90 world series championship team, part of the, part of the nasty boys. And you're kind of in awe of him. And then the success he had had in Seattle and, and uh, trying to make it back. I don't recall him pitching much that year down there, but I remember meeting him and just being like, wow, Norm Charlton. And he was friendly, friendly guy. I think a lot of these guys like Norm Charlton, when they come back later in their careers, are so confident in their ability, so confident in what they've done, proud of what they've done in the big leagues, and their ability to handle situations that they're no longer intimidated by, not that they would be intimidated by media, certainly a minor league radio announcer, but none of that bothered them anymore. None of them. It's just like they handled whatever came their way, did it professionally, and moved on. Understanding that they had a job to do, I had a job to do, other media people had jobs to do, and you just moved on with it. And uh, you did your job, did what you had to do, and you, and you moved on. A lot of times when players are coming up, they don't think of it that way. They think of it as, I'm a baseball player, and I'm here to play baseball, and that's all I have to do. I don't have to do all this other stuff. They realize later on that that's not really not the case. Rarely do you see a guy go through his whole career and not uh, become more media friendly or understand that there are more responsibilities to being a baseball player than just playing baseball. And the more that they understand that, the better they become at, well, at their entire job and the more that people like them because they want to hear from them. 
yeah, especially a guy like that that was so beloved and a part of a, a big part of Reds history going back to that World Series team in 1990. Uh, something else, what was – do you remember what the – what the excitement level or the thoughts were the mood about opening a new ballpark amongst the players and the team. Obviously these guys were Reds players playing for the Reds organization. Um, Before we mentioned the two years before this, it had been a Brewers affiliate and then the Cardinals before that. So by and large, these were guys that, that hadn't really come through Louisville before you didn't really have, you know, maybe by chance a few, but, but not really any repeats in terms of they played in Louisville last year and they're back this year because uh, they're, they're still in triple a or, or what it was. So, so these guys didn't have a chance to see really what you were coming from necessarily to what you were going into. Uh, what was, what was, do you, do you remember kind of the, the mood from, from the players as, as you guys were getting set to open this place up? Well, a couple of things, Nick, about that one, because the season had just started, we were only six games into it. We really didn't know the guys. And I say we, it was really me because at that time I was doing the games by myself on the radio side. We didn't really know them that well because we'd only been around them a week. Here's a look at the clubhouse, by the way. And, uh, oh, yeah. I look at those this lockers. Are still the lockers that are there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the clubhouse. Obviously, obviously, it's finished now, but it uh, it wasn't quite – completely finished just yet at this time. And she takes you into the lounge area there. And, uh, it's, uh, you know, a lot of that stuff on the floor. No carpet. Yeah. It's it's, no carpet down there. Yeah. Pretty, pretty roughed in. And you made the comment that it was the priority to get everything done that the fans would see. And, you know, so the priority was to get that stuff done and then to be able to go back and finish up everything else. And, they had it done to where the players could be in there, but but not quite uh, to what it is now with like a ping pong table and pool table and, and those sorts of things. Yeah. So so anyway, uh, talking about what the players thought and what they had hoped would come come of all this, we really didn't get a chance to know them that well because we had only met them a week before. So didn't know them a lot. And because it was a new franchise, of, a new affiliation for our franchise, like you said, there were no carryover guys, although some of these guys would have come through Louisville before and played at the old ballpark because they were in the minor leagues at the time. Uh, and then remember, unlike in the big leagues, I didn't go to spring training and broadcast all the games to get to know the guys then. I think I would go to spring training for four or five days just to to meet some of the guys, to meet with the manager. We had the benefit of knowing Dave Miley from all the years that he had managed up in Indianapolis. So we knew who he was and uh, we really didn't know him that much, but I do remember the players, their concern naturally is about their environment. So they wanted with a new ballpark and knowing that the stadium wasn't going to be exactly 100% finished. They wanted to make sure that their areas, the areas that affected them were going to be workable. The the clubhouse, the, the training room, the batting cage, all that kind of thing, you know, make sure that that stuff is in working order. We wanted to make sure we being the the franchise wanted to make sure that everything was ready for the fans. But from a player standpoint, let's face it, they're going to be a little bit selfish and they're, they want to make sure that everything's going to be ready for the things that they are involved with quite natural, nothing wrong with that. 
So I remember them thinking, well, I hope this is going to be ready, and I hope we can have this, and I hope the, the showers are working, and I hope the training room is ready to go because I need to do this. Those are natural things. Everybody wants the area that they're going to be in to be ready, and that was a concern of the players back in those days. What uh, I know you have some good stories about him, but, but uh, whatever you feel suitable for this, obviously this was your first year having Dave Miley as the Louisville manager. Um, what do you remember about working with, uh, working with Dave Miley? Well, Dave Miley was one of a kind, that's for certain. I mean, of all the managers that I had worked with there, certainly I would put him up there amongst my favorites. I would say that my all-time favorite manager uh, in franchise history that I worked with was probably Joe Patini, uh, who managed uh, in the mid-'90s of the Cardinals. I I just really, really got along well with Joe. I would say that Rick Sweet is right up there also, and Dave Miley, those three guys. And maybe I I, I say Patini first, but maybe the three of them kind of are one, one 1A, and 1B. They're all – I, I love those three guys and enjoyed working with them. And Miley was the most unique, though, by far, because Dave was a baseball lifer. And, you know, he, he had a unique way about him to make people around him feel important. And whether it be the clubhouse guy or the radio guys or the PR guy, uh, he made you feel like you were important to him. And uh, when you are made to feel important, I think you you work a little harder, and and uh, you're more accommodating to people. And he had a way of bringing that out in people. And uh, I had met him years ago, prior to 2000, when he was managing Indianapolis through uh, Mark Boyle, the play-by-play announcer for the uh, Indianapolis Indiana Pacers, who had introduced me to Dave. Uh, and I met Mark through uh, a Pacers caravan. Back uh, in the old Cardinal Stadium days, he used to come down and bring some Pacers players, and we'd put them on the air. And then uh, he was a big baseball guy. He'd go out to the stadium, and he introduced me to Miley when Miley was managing the Indians. And then uh, when Indianapolis would play at old Cardinal Stadium, you know, everybody that was anybody hung out at the old uh, stadium club. And Miley would come up there from the Indianapolis clubhouse, and Mark Boyle would be there. And so we all got talking. And so when Dave took over, you know, we thought it was going to be fun because we already knew him. And he brought Grant Jackson, his pitching coach, with him. And uh, Grant was a, a real hit. He was another unique individual that I don't know that you'll ever see another one like like Grant Jackson. <laughs> and uh, so it was good to be with Miley. I, I will tell you this. Here's my best Dave Miley story. And this is typical of Dave. He made you feel important. Remember I said that. So we're playing on Easter Sunday, and I believe it was this this season, uh, the first year, 2000, we're playing an Easter Sunday in Toledo. And before the game, Dave says to me, what are you doing after the game? And I said, well, I don't have any plans. You know, we had a game the next day in Toledo. This was on a Sunday. We had a game again on Monday. He said, come down to the clubhouse after the game. You and I will go out and get an Easter dinner. And I thought, wasn't that nice of him? That's really nice. And, okay, I'll do that. I didn't know if it was just going to be he and I, the coaching staff, or what the situation might be. So we play in Toledo on Easter Sunday. I go down to the clubhouse. I get down there, and everybody's gone except him. He's down there. And I'm like, okay, well, 
maybe a little odd, but the two of us will go out and get uh, get Easter dinner. And uh, we we had a beer or so in the clubhouse as he was finishing up his reports and getting ready to go. And uh, a, a clubhouse guy is there. And Dave said, whatever the clubhouse guy's name was, he's going to take us to a place. Like, okay, great. Where are we going to go? Dave's like, uh, I, I don't know exactly the name of the place, but I've been there before. It's a good spot. You'll like it. I'm like, okay. I, again, naive that I am. I don't think anything of it. I'm like, okay, we're going to go out and get an Easter dinner. I'm thinking of like um, maybe like a Friday's or a, or a, uh, you know, that kind of place. Sure. TGI sure. Fridays, Applebee's, a Chili's, something like that. We're going to go there on Easter Sunday. So we get in the guy's car. We're driving. And I said, well, what's in, where are we going? What's the name of this place? What do they have to eat? And he's like, you know, I'm not real sure. He said, uh, we'll check it out, though, when we get there. You'll, you'll like it. And we're driving along. And he pulls into this little parking lot. And I'm like, where are we going? What is this? And he says, right here, this is the place. And it was a little, a little hole-in-the-wall bar, a little hole-in-the-wall bar. And we get out, and I'm like, Dave, I thought we were going to dinner. He goes, we are. We're going to go in here. So we go in there, and there's a couple of older ladies behind the bar, a couple of people sitting at the bar, and they're like, hey, Dave, Dave, how you doing? And I'm like, <laughs> what is this place? What is this? He goes, don't worry. You'll, you'll love it. You'll love it. We sit down at the bar, and, and I order a draft beer or something. They know cans. We only have cans. So you get a canned beer, and I'm like, well, I don't see the menu. Where's the menu? And Dave says to the lady, I think her name was Susie, behind the bar, Susie, you guys serve food here? And she's like, yeah, I think we have some frozen pizza somewhere. I'm like, what is this? I thought we were going out to Easter dinner. He goes, she's got some food for you. Don't worry. And that was that was his idea of Easter dinner, going to some neighborhood dive bar that he had been to probably 100 times when he had come to Toledo over the years, he knew this place. He was comfortable in this place. And for Easter Sunday dinner was a frozen pizza at a, a nondescript hole-in-the-wall bar in Toledo, Ohio. That's my Dave, one of my Dave Myers stories. That is perfect. That I can tell. The other was that is, in a rainout one night, one. and I wasn't involved in this one, Nick, but Jeff Hollis was the PR guy at the time. And uh, uh, Oh, boy. As I told you, Dave had a way – of endearing himself to people and getting people to do things that maybe they didn't really want to do because they wanted to make Dave happy. And uh, there was a rainout one night, and Dave somehow got Jeff to bring a grill down to the ballpark, and he and Dave grilled out in the dugout. A little a little hibachi grill. <laughs> somehow... Dave talked Jeff into bringing a little hibachi grill, and they set it up in the clubhouse, and they grilled because Dave had nowhere else to go to eat. He wanted to grill out, so he got Jeff to bring the grill down. And I think I recall Jeff calling me and said, hey, Dave and I are going to grill out down here. Why don't you come down? I'm like, are you out of your mind? I'm not coming down there for that. <laughs> but again, oh, Dave had a way of like getting you to do things that you didn't really want to do. That was one of those. That's a that's a great story. You you told me that one during this last season, and it's it's a, it's amazing. Just grill it out in the dugout on a on an off day. Uh, that's oh, it. Boy. Doesn't get much better than that. No, it sure uh, doesn't. We it sure had doesn't. 
we had the uh, we had the scroll across the the screen there that tonight's West Wing episode will air Saturday at noon. So uh, you guys in this game were preempting the West Wing uh, as Wave Three uh, broadcasted this game to the masses here in Louisville, of course, the NBC affiliate. So uh, pretty big time stuff. You guys kept the West Wing off the air to uh, to to have this game on. You can still watch the West Wing, by the way. It's on Netflix. You can go back and watch every episode of West Wing. Yeah, is that we haven't asked you about that? What have uh, what have uh, what have you been doing to pass the time during during the social isolation period we're in? A lot of television. I'll tell you what. I've watched more TV. I'm I'm a television junkie anyway. I love watching television, but I have watched so much Netflix and Hulu and HBO. Uh, I just watch a lot of stuff. Our routine usually is my wife and I eat dinner, watch the world news with Nora O'Donnell on CBS because we love Nora, and then jump into a show that we're either been watching or try to figure out a new one to watch. I like uh, episodes more than movies because movies take so long, but episodes you can watch in 45 minutes, you know, and then you have something to look forward to. So maybe you watch two or three episodes and by that time, it's time to go to bed. And uh, that's pretty much the process, you know. Do different things during the day, working on a uh, on a uh, deck project with, with power washing and staining, trying to get that all done. It's taken a while because of the weather. But uh, work on that during the day or, or some other various things we're doing. And then uh, dinner, the world news, and uh, TV at night. It's been fun. I'd like a little variety now. I wish we could get back to some regular things, and hopefully we will soon, including uh, baseball. So we'll see. How about you, Nick? Well, uh, yeah, just watching watching some TV. That, that's been a big part of it. Recording podcasts with folks like you. Uh, that's been, you know, that's been good. We've, uh, we've had Pat Kelly and, and Kevin Mahar and, and Bull Durham on. So those, those have been good. And, uh, we've been doing some, uh, some voiceovers of, of kids playing baseball, with, which people can continue to, to send in on, on various social media platforms, Facebook and Twitter can DM the bats, videos of your kids playing uh, baseball out in the yard during all this and we'll voice them over like uh, like it's a, a broadcast those have been those have been quite a bit of fun and and uh, re-airing some games on uh, on Friday nights on on 790 here so getting those ready have been big but it's been a lot of a lot of TV little bit of a uh, little bit of watching old games like this one that we're watching right now and and uh, looking forward, frankly, to the Chicago Bulls documentary this Sunday that uh, the first two parts of The Last Dance, the last uh, Michael Jordan season with the Bulls drops this Sunday. I'm really happy that ESPN's putting that out a little bit earlier than they were planning to in June because, uh, man, I need I need something else to watch, and that's going to be pretty cool, I think. So, Well, here is the last grasp now for the, uh, the Riverbats in this game. They were trailing. What, three to one going into the bottom of the sixth? They take the lead here, get everybody all jazzed up. They ultimately can't hang on to the lead, but this is a big inning highlighted by the, uh, the hit by Mike Bell later on, who I have a story about when he comes up. Looking forward to that. Uh, do, you, do you remember anything about Kamara Barty here? I remember he was a good guy, good to talk to, a hard nosed player, 
I think he had played at Toledo prior to coming to Louisville. Uh, a little bit of big league time. I remember Camaro Barty being a nice guy. Scott Reynolds mentioned he evidently played in the College World Series with Creighton back in 1991 as well. So uh, had some success in the college career. John Belsky. Yeah, we got all the big names out on this, didn't he? I mean, Wave 3 really went all all in on this. All their big-name celebrities came out to the ballpark that night. Yeah, I, I think um, I, I think most of John's stuff was live. I think the, the Jackie Hayes stuff, I think, was mostly – uh, recorded stuff. It seemed like that they kind of dropped in when there was time during during innings when there wasn't uh, maybe a huge amount of action or or trying to sneak it mostly in between batters. Do you remember anything about that at all? Like the the production aspect and and how any of that worked? No, um, you know that was all separate from what we were doing up in the booth. I just remember it being, you know, when when the open came on and and the three of us, Scott Reynolds and Bob Dominey and myself are doing the open it all looks like oh just like hey guys come on over here we're going to do this but there's so much planning that goes into it as to how much time we had what we were going to talk about the fact that it was going to be uh scott and bob first then they were going to bring me in on the baseball side of things then get into the game you know you really just worried about this the the part of the broadcast that you were going to be involved in you didn't want to mess it up cognizant of the fact that it was the first ever game at the new ballpark and the, the viewership would be high. You, you wanted to, you didn't want to mess up, you know? And so you, you found out what you, you were going to do, what you had to do. And uh, you concentrated on doing the best you could on that because you didn't want to look like a fool later on. That's what I remember. So, <laughs> sure. Sure. You, you never want to look like a fool. Uh, Chris Sexton drawing the walk, and now they go to Jackie Hayes, who's with Paul Patton here wearing the, the River Bats hat. The, the governor of Kentucky at the time, one of that trio throwing out the first pitches we saw earlier um, with, with Dave Armstrong, who was the mayor at the time, and Jerry Abramson, who at this time was the former mayor and really helped push this whole project through. But uh, Paul Patton talking about what a, what a great day it was for the state of Kentucky as well here, and looks like they're standing right outside of uh, Sweet Nine. Yes, John Hillerick just went in. There's Charlotte Jones from from uh, a Louisville Slugger, big time, big name people back in those days. So all so, the dignitaries were out for this thing. Oh, yeah, they were all out. So Kishnick is up now. Bell is on deck. Uh, bats are trailing three to one, and I don't know how long Bell's at bat goes. So I will tell you this: later in this this 2000 season. Marty Brenneman was inducted into the broadcaster's wing of the Baseball Hall of Fame. He went in with a with a, a number of other Reds, as I recall. It might have been Tony Perez. Didn't Perez and Sparky Anderson go in at the same oh. time, Nick? Do you remember yes. that? Yeah, you, you talked about it during the broadcast. And uh, Sparky Anderson did go in. And I'm trying to find out who – I've got it in my notes here somewhere. Uh, it was Sparky. It was uh, Marty. And, well, I'll try to find it. I've got it written down here somewhere. I just have to find it. Give me a second. I'll find it. Well, as you look for that, I'll, I'll tell the Bell story because we don't know how long his at-bat will go. Uh, oh, it Mike was, was called up. Carlton Fitz went in. Okay, okay. So there are two Reds. So the Reds are going to have a big contingent there in Cooperstown that year, including Joe Nuxall. So Nuxie and Marty were doing the games still for the Reds at the time. 
and John Allen was running the, the Reds, and John had said to me, would you be willing and able to come up and do the game on that Sunday, induction Sunday in July, because Marty and Joe will both be gone. You'll be working with Dan Horde, who was doing, the, I think, doing Friday and Saturday with Joe, and then Marty and Joe will both be gone on Sunday because Joe was going out to Cooperstown for Marty's induction. I said, yeah. So Mike Bell had been called up at the time, and I actually called Mike Bell's first big league hit. I think it was one of only two hits he had in his big league career. Uh, wow. Positive of that. I'll try to look it up. But I, I, I know Bell had a hit in that game. It was against Arizona on a Sunday, and I had the call, and I remember they gave the baseball to him, and we, uh, Dan and I described it. Let's see. Well, he had he had six hits, six hits in the big leagues yep. that year, twenty seven uh, at bats, and I called Mike Bell's first big league hit. David Bell, I called David Bell's grand slam in Louisville at Old Louisville Slugger Field when he was a member of the Redbirds, and uh, their father, uh, Buddy Bell, when when I first got uh, uh, a job up in Cincinnati with the Reds. I talked to Buddy Bell long and hard about renting his house for a place to live. When we first moved up here, didn't have a place to live, and uh, we're getting some help from some people. And one of the uh, places that we were looking at was Buddy Bell's house in Anderson, Ohio, Anderson Township. And he said, uh, I've got an offer on the house. If it falls through, I'll rent the house to you. And if it doesn't, obviously, you'll need to find somewhere else. And he called me later and said that the, the offer did did happen. The guy did buy the house. So uh, uh, we never lived in Buddy Bell's house, but we had talked to Buddy about it. So I had a thing going on with Buddy Bell, Mike Bell, and uh, David Bell. Not all the Bells, but Got a the lot both? of them. No Gus. A lot of the Bells. Uh, yeah. yeah, no Gus. But uh, you, you guys mentioned on the broadcast here that Buddy, I think, had been the farm director for the Reds the year before. And uh, I think this year had gotten the manager job with the Rockies, so he wasn't in the organization anymore. But uh, still, obviously, had his son a son Mike on this uh, Riverbats team. Yeah, he was a longtime farm director for the White Sox, uh, and that's where I, when he was, when I came up to Cincinnati in 2010, he was working for the White Sox, and so he would leave his home. Uh, and he was living in Chicago at the time, but he still had the home down in Cincinnati, and he was trying to sell it and or lease it. So I was trying to lease it. It didn't work out. This, by the way, will be the last batter faced by the lefty Bobby Jones. There's a blast. And that's why. Mm. How about that? First home run ever hit? Yeah. At Louisville that's Slugger it. Field, Mike, Mike Bell. Bell. He's a farm director now, I think. In the, uh, in the, is he in the Giants organization? I think he might be. I think that sounds right. Uh, yeah. Uh, trying to look that up real quick here on the fly too. Um, actually, he's the bench coach with the Minnesota Twins with Rocco Baldelli. Okay, there you go. Pretty good blast out so onto the uh, berm be- out there. Yeah, that was that one made it out. Not an easy place as we talked about to hit it out. 
and uh, he got that one muscled out of there. So that gave the bats a 4-3 lead that would hold until the eighth. Unfortunately, uh, runs given up by, by Louisville pitching. They lose that game. But right then, at the time in the sixth inning, they'd taken the lead, and people were all excited about it. It was, uh, it was huge. And uh, you guys, no breaks. This is our, our buddy, L'Oreal Gonzalez, who did not lead off the game uh, as a batter but he is on to, to pitch here. And a uh, couple more batters in this inning. We'll stick with it till the end of this inning and then and then wrap things up. But you, um, obviously, a part of this great night and, and, and so much uh, so much was going on leading up to this. And I, I would just uh, imagine that it was pretty – I don't know if chaotic's the right word or, or pretty eventful leading up to the to the 2000 season. What what do you remember about that? And here they're showing the concession lines. What do you, what do you uh, what do you remember about that kind of leading up to this season in general, like the 99 to 2000 off season and and what was going on in the office working in, in that side of it? Well, on on one hand, Nick, it was very stressful because. You were working. The, remember what I said earlier. The offices were still out at old Louisville, at old uh, Cardinal Stadium, but the season was going to happen at Louisville Slugger Field. But you really couldn't get in down there. And so, as you were trying to sell advertising for the outfield wall or ads, whatever you were trying to do, whoever you talked to from whatever company, inevitably they wanted a behind-the-scenes tour of the new ballpark. Hey, can you sneak me in and show me around? And we were told explicitly you cannot do that and people would get upset about it because they you know they were going to spend their money with the team they wanted uh they wanted a little something extra like you said they wanted to kind of pull the curtain back and see what was going on and we really couldn't do that and uh, people would get upset but uh that's just the way it was so we had a lot of interest in advertising because of the new ballpark and the numbers that we were going to draw we felt and uh you were working working at the ballpark at the fairgrounds, but trying to open up this this stadium and you're constantly going back and forth. We as employees could get down there, and I think we took weekly tours to see the progress that was being made. And I remember going up to the press box a number of times when it was first being built. David Gardner was the, a guy that had been hired by the team to oversee the construction. And I remember three or four times he took me into the radio booth. Is Now, is this big enough? Is this wide enough? Is this how you want things? How do you want the windows? Is this okay on this? Is this okay on that? I think uh, really the only thing later that I would change is the windows between we have our radio booth and then to the left is the visiting radio booth and to the right is the operations booth. And now there's a like of a, a big window that kind of pulls toward you and it opens and you can lean over and talk. I wish now there had been a little sliding window that you could just pull up and talk to the people and then push it back down, and that would be best. But I, I just remember it being a stressful time but an exciting time because of what was going to happen downtown, and that was the opening of this beautiful new ballpark. And uh, what a night it was, as you saw Brady Clark pop out to in that inning, and We'll wrap things up from here. Well, real quick, we haven't talked about Brady Clark at all. I think he's a name that a lot of people will remember. What do you What do you remember about Brady Clark? Brady Clark was another one of those hard nosed players that uh, uh, 
you know, he, he became a much better player as his career went on. He wasn't the most gifted in terms of his, uh, in terms of his natural abilities, but he, he played really hard, and I was glad to see him have a little bit of success in the big leagues with the Reds, and I think he bounced around a little bit, played in two or three other big league teams, was a regular for a couple of years, I think, in Milwaukee, but I enjoyed Brady, thought he was a good guy, and uh, he was you know, from out west in the Portland area, so, uh, uh, yeah, I just thought he was a hard-nosed guy. He had a, I remember he had an eye problem one year and that he couldn't see very well, and he got contacts, and it was like the whole world opened up for him, you know? It's like, oh, wow, this is great, and he became a pretty good player. I like Brady. And the contact, the contacts will always help uh, a little bit it with did, that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, as we mentioned, we're just going to we'll, – we'll wrap things up here. We took you through the sixth inning. Obviously, Norfolk, as Jim mentioned, went on to score five runs in the eighth and really retake control of this game. The bats at this time were leading 4-3 uh, after that Mike Bell three-run homer. Uh, the Tides get five in the eighth, go on to win the game 8-5 as uh kind of drags a little bit toward the end. And if you watch this on YouTube, you can obviously watch it out till the – well, almost the end. You'll, you'll see uh, – through the top of the ninth, there's no bottom of the ninth. The peak behind the curtain was starting to talk about this earlier. Uh, our good buddy, Greg Galliette, actually, uh, well, the reason we had this game is because he had it uh, on VHS at his house, and we got him uh, digitized and everything like that. And uh, Greg, I think, caught the tail end of this with a Kentucky-St. Louis NCAA tournament basketball game. Uh, that that clipped a lot of the bottom of the ninth off. So if you watch this all the way through, you'll see to the top of the ninth because it got uh, it got taped over a little bit. So Greg's a big Greg basketball a, fan, as we know. Yeah, big baseball guy, but probably basketball, college basketball tops his list. And so push came to shove, I'm sure, one night, and he needed some tape to record the end of that game. And he pulled this out, hopefully not knowing uh, that it was this opening night game only realizing it later on. So we'll, we'll, we'll cut him some slack on that. Yeah. And uh, if you're still watching along, John Belsky talking to the gentleman who caught Mike Bell's home run ball, they found him out there on the berm, which is pretty cool. Rocking the, uh, the St. Louis Cardinals Jersey there holding that ball up. So pretty cool stuff. Uh, getting on top of that quick, but big thanks to Greg for finding this video. And that is what uh, enabled that to happen on Facebook live last week. If you tuned into the re air and, and uh, allowed us to be able to do this here today. And Jim, real pleasure. Thanks for doing this. It was a, a lot of fun to kind of uh, stroll down memory lane and listen to you go back and, and check this out again after having lived it 20 years ago. Well, it was a lot of fun for me too, Nick. I tell you, you, you see some of these players and you see some of the events and you're like, wow, I can't believe that that's 20 years ago. And I was a part of that, proud to be a part of it. And, uh, Please that you asked me to to do this with you, and uh, hopefully we'll do some others. Yeah, I hope we uh, get a chance to do that too. And well, looking forward to to working with you again whenever this twenty twenty season gets going. Um, hopefully in the uh, in the not too uh, distant future. So um, we'll look forward to that too. We'll knock on wood and hope that everybody is safe, continues to be safe, practice social distancing. And we can get through this as quickly as we can and get back to what will end up being a new normal because we won't go back to the way things were, but we'll have a new normal that we'll enjoy equally as well. 
All right, that's Jim Kelch as we look back at April 12, 2000, getting you through the sixth inning at least. Uh, game kind of dragged on there, and of course the River Bats fell behind down the stretch and eventually lost the game. But got you through the most exciting parts as uh, Bats fans, and hope you enjoyed that. And uh, cutting off a little early too, the commercials still in there. Would have taken a lot to be able to edit those out and everything. So with the commercials still in, didn't want to to go too long, but a lot of fun to go back and hit some of the highlights from uh, Jim's time with the River Bats and opening that up. Just uh, great stuff, and hope you enjoyed that as much as I did getting a chance to sit here and listen to Jim. Again, the podcast brought to you by our friends at Norton Healthcare. With Norton eCare, we're here to help you while you stay in the comfort and safety of your home anytime, day or night. A Norton Healthcare provider is available to discuss non-urgent health concerns for patients two and older, whether it's for a fever, a cough, respiratory symptoms, or a minor illness. Schedule a video visit or submit an e-visit questionnaire from your laptop, tablet, or mobile device. Schedule online at nortonhealthcare.com slash eCare. Fun episode and uh, really uh, hoping to get back into the booth soon with baseball going and uh, work with Jim. It was a pleasure to do that last year. Of course, he was back in the booth uh, last year and I had a chance to, to work with him hoping that will be the case again this year as uh, hoping very soon we'll be able to get the season going as we continue to wait and see. Everybody stay safe and healthy and uh, continue that social distancing as Jim said hopefully we can be through this sooner rather than later. Thanks so much for listening this week. Thanks again to Jim Kelch. I'm Nick Curran. This is the Bat Chat Podcast. We'll talk to you next week.